Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we're the Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman. It's the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. And what a conversation we have for you today. Jordan O'Moore is here, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, and joining us on the Patreon live stream, we've got Social Jess, we've got Podcast Sean, Post-Production Peter, and of course, all of our Patreon supporters. Big thanks for your support. You keep our podcast and our YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because, say it with me, y'all. Advertisements Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Today, we're talking about a rather contentious subject, monogamy and non-monogamy, a subject about which your three hosts have three different viewpoints. And To clarify things, we're adding a fourth perspective from an expert. Joining us in the studio today is Aubrey Marcus. Aubrey is an author, podcaster, entrepreneur, filmmaker, philosopher, poet, and most importantly for this conversation, husband. Ladies and gentlemen, Aubrey Marcus. Yeah! Yes, sir. Yeah. Let's go. Thanks for being here. Let's go. Thanks, <laughs> What a conversation. I've been waiting to uh, to get into this. We've got a bunch of questions from our audience. We'll get to our callers here in a moment. So if you have a question or a comment for our show, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. But first, we've got a question from Ivaras on Facebook. Oh dear, a conversation about monogamy and open relationships. Is that even legal? I thought (laughs) such explosive stuff was for confessional only. I I find this topic very surprising in the context of minimalism. Why choose a personal trainer to dissect the pros and cons of promiscuity? Wow. Wow. Uh, 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 uh. I didn't even know I was a personal trainer. So thank you. Thank you for that accolade that I didn't deserve. However, I appreciate it. It's just that he's like really handsome and fit and he's been on the cover of, of Men's Health Magazine. And so I, I trained myself personally, I suppose. So there we go. That's got like say, I don't, why are you having a model talk about this? <laughs> hey, look at you guys. It's hard to get a love fest. So, so Aubrey, I found that judgment is the fastest way to shut down a conversation. So we put out a call for our listeners to send in questions about this. And this one was fascinating to me because there are some assumptions here. Of course, when you talk about Aubrey Marcus, you you could say entrepreneur, you can say husband, Mm -hmm. you can say a a podcaster, author, whatever. And someone says, well, here's a really fit guy. So I'm going to call him A, a personal trainer. Mm Mm-hmm. But then I'm also going to say to talk about the pros and cons of promiscuity. And that's a word with a lot of baggage associated Mm. with it as well. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let Aubrey talk here because I'm really fascinated in his perspective. But the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about this is you've gone through quite the transformation journey yourself. Someone who seemed to be really into polyamory and and being uh, having multiple partners and then have found yourself in a monogamous relationship. And I don't even know what your current status is. And I thought Mm -hmm. maybe you could walk us through that journey and having a a deeper understanding of what it means to be in relationship with someone else. 
I mean, this is a huge question. Relationship is a central core part of our life. Like that dyad that we have, typically it's a dyad. Now there's some other different constellations that do exist, but typically it's a dyad between two people. That forms like the core nucleus that we build our lives around to a great degree. And sometimes we don't have that and we're single and there's many different ways to do it. But that dyad is a core tenet of our life. So how to organize the structure around that is something that's very important. And I think we've been given this default model, which is you got to be monogamous and it's got to be this way and this Mm -hmm. is what you got to do. It's like basically downloading the contract from LegalZoom when you start your company and saying, oh yeah, it's perfect just as it is. No modifications necessary, Mm. right? And that's the way that we really have been kind of told in the mainstream about what we're supposed to do. And sometimes that works. Sometimes the legal Zoom contract works just right. And it's just exactly as you want. But I think we're all unique individuals with unique desires. And we're facing some different trends that are happening in the aggregate. So if you look at some of the trends that are happening in the aggregate, you can look at Dr. Wednesday Martin's book, Untrue. And in there, she charts graphs of sexual desire and the amount of times that people have sex with each other in marriage. And what you see is typically after two or three years, for the men, that starts to decline. Their sexual desire towards their partner starts to decline slowly on a kind of ever-descending graph. And for women, actually, it falls off a cliff. And it just, the graph goes up and then it just drops. And this is why we get all of those memes about when a man is wants to have sex with his wife, I hope I get lucky tonight. Maybe I'll get lucky tonight, right? Mm. Like we have this in the zeitgeist that somehow the woman doesn't want to make love to her husband. And actually in the aggregate, that pans out. So we're seeing that there's an mm. issue. Now, either you can just say, this is just life. This is how it works. If you're in this thing, this is what you can expect. No worries. And you can normalize that. Or you can say, no. I'm not going to accept that. I want to adjust the agreement or layer in new technology that I can use in my lovemaking that will actually change that dynamic. So those were the two choices. Now, the first choice I made was to adjust the agreement. And I adjusted the agreement by entering into a polyamorous container with my partner, Whitney. That was unbelievably difficult. I cannot express to you how difficult that was. And of course, you can lob your insults and accusations, and I promise you it has a lot more to do with it than promiscuity. This is the pain and torture of knowing that your sweetheart, the one that you love, is just as free to go out and be with another man as you are free to be with another woman. And we all had, we both had several lovers during that period. But it was incredibly challenging. So Mm -hmm. it was really a path of evolution and self-transformation. But what we were doing is in the access to other partners, the novelty, right, of like being with somebody new sparked what the technical term is, is limerence, which is that new relationship energy where everything feels fresh and exciting. Because what you're doing is you're encountering the stranger in a new person. So for me, it was another face of the goddess. It was another woman that I could actually see and learn about and understand and see how she saw me and see my reflection in her and give her a reflection through me. And that process was beautiful. And my paramours, as they're called, they lasted one was like six years or three years or four years. These were deep relationships that coincided with my primary partnership with Whitney, who was actually my fiance. 
But through that, it was incredibly challenging because at certain points, that limerence, that new relationship energy, it will actually make it feel like you're no longer the primary partner because they're so excited about their new, she was so excited about her new boyfriend or Mm. I was so excited about my new girlfriend that you were like, yeah, you're my queen and you're my king and we're in primary partnership. But really secretly, we're just thinking about these other people because that's the new relationship. That's the limerence energy. So it worked to keep passion alive, but it was ultimately incredibly difficult. And after eight years of that journey on in polyamory, it was it got the better of me. I just had to actually wave the white flag and say, like, I can't do this. So Whitney and I ended up splitting up. And then I was basically single for a period of time, even though Whitney and I would still, you know, we're still entangled and we'd still see each other. But it got the better of me. I ultimately couldn't handle her being in love with other men. And I did my best and and I got better at it for sure. From the first time she had a lover to the last time she had a lover, I was definitely more seasoned, more equipped. But it got the better of me. I was never able to actually fully, honestly be okay. And mm-hmm. so there was lots of positive things on the other side. I had amazing, great relationships. And I was actually able to meet my wife and we didn't start a relationship, but I was able to have the freedom to meet my wife and hang out with her because we were in a polyamorous container. Now it took many years after meeting her before we actually got together. But when I got together with Vailana, then I was finished with polyamory and I was like, you're the one. We got married in a matter of months and I was absolutely sure. I was like, I want to be with you the rest of my life. And I trusted that during that period, I'd also learned new technology. And the new technology was how do you encounter the stranger in the same person over and over? How do you find novelty at depth rather than novelty in variety and breadth? So finding the stranger inside of her every single time, you know, maybe not this exaggeration, but you know, as many times as we apply this technology, this tantric technology, finding the stranger in my same wife and that evokes that same level of passion. So all those graphs that I talked about in Dr. Wednesday Martin's book, those are going to be the things untrue, not the title of her book, because we're going to be the outlier. Mm. And that's the life that I'm living now, three years in. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And what does that have to do with minimalism? (laughs) If, If it's not already clear, I'll let you know. Minimalism is not about luxury goods and moving boxes and other things that we stuff away in a storage facility. It's about dealing with the things that weigh us down and hold us back from living the healthiest kind of life we can live. And so if you've got relationship clutter or psychological clutter, philosophical clutter, you can have a house empty of things and still be weighed down. And everything that Aubrey's talking about right now is about relationship clutter. Mm. The stories we tell about ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves about how we relate to one another and the process that he went through to downsize some things that was hurting him Mm -hmm. and making the quality of his life worse. But TK, just to piggyback on that, the reason I wanted to have Aubrey here is I knew he would be talking about this without a particular dogma. I could talk to someone who is in a monogamous relationship and they say, well, actually, the right relationship is between one man and one woman. And uh, mm-hmm. even when you look at monogamy, we, we, and we could talk about what monogamy is, like true monogamy and the truest sense of the word is two people meet when they're both are virgins and they spend their entire life together, right? Mm. And so most people who are 
advocating for monogamy aren't even advocating for that kind of monogamy. It's more about serial monogamy or being with one person at a time with no overlap. Mm. And so when we're talking about this subject, I want to talk to you because you obviously have some experience here on both sides. And you talked about the pain and the torture of being in an open relationship. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Well, yes. I mean, it was both pain and torture and absolute ecstasy, right? I mean, it was both of those. And you can't really talk about one without the other. There's the elation of being with those new partners. And there's the elation of actually what they call reclamation energy when your partner's been with somebody else and you come back together and you try, and it's like you're trying to, you know, fuse your energy field so deeply that all memory of past lovers goes away, right? It's like you try <laughs> to smash together and it's like push out any memory of, of anybody that they've been with. So mm. there's a lot of passion there. But fundamentally, there's a lot of, reinforced perhaps biologically, definitely sociological Mm. jealousy that's there. You know, if Mm. your partner loves somebody else, if your partner wants to sleep with somebody else, there's some internal deficiency with you. Mm. Remember the first lover my partner had was a professional fighter. And (laughs) it was, it was really brutal because I thought like, okay, if she's going to love me, I got to become a better fighter. So I got in the gym and I was like training hard. And then one day I was like, you're a fucking idiot. (laughs) You're never going to be anywhere as good as this guy. He will beat you up a thousand times out of a thousand. So what are you even doing? You know? And it was like, I had to ultimately, this was one of the lessons. I had to trust that Whitney loved Aubrey for Aubrey. And the only thing I could do was be the most Aubrey that I could possibly be. So it was a lesson in self-love. But through the process, Mm. I felt deficient. I felt less than. I felt like I was not good enough. And it didn't matter what guy she was with. Even if it was a guy that partied more than me and was free, more available for that type of expression of energy, I'd be like, I just work too hard. I'm a loser. I'm Mm. always working. I don't have the time to party with my sweetheart and be with her like he does. Of course, she loves him more than me. You know, Mm. he just didn't have a fucking job. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like, he was a good guy, but like, but fundamentally, I would try to compete with everything. I have to relearn that lesson over and over. And then Mm. they would have an experience (laughs) that was really intense, either sexually or romantically. And then I'd be like, have we had an experience like that? Like, when was the last time that happened with us? Like, what? It was so brutal. So brutal. Did you ever find yourself uh, like trying to one up (laughs) each other? Because it sounds like every time she, Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a really toxic expression of how to handle it. And we did our best not to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I I imagine that there was some of that in there, right? Like, and certainly if one of us was with somebody else, the other one would make sure that they would be with one of their partners too, right? Like Mm. we tried, we tried, it was very difficult to just be sitting at home, twiddling our thumbs, being (laughs) like, ah, hope they're having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really hope it's going well. And sometimes we would, we would be like really gracious and like Mm. they would be at a hotel and I'd call in and I'd order champagne for them as like... Like an honor of like, look, I honor that you're going to enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. And she would do the same for me. And we would try our best, but it wasn't always fully available to us. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Whitney did a better job than me in, in some regards as far as being able to deal with it. 
I was, I'm just a more emotional creature and mm-hmm. it was, it was really tough. Yeah. And so you struggled in this relationship. You also experienced great pleasure and ecstasy and joy and a lot of growth, it sounds like yep. as well. And yet it seems to me that other people in a similar scenario don't have those same struggles. And so maybe you could talk about from your exposure to people who are in open re- relationships that seem to be thriving maybe they don't have that same level of jealousy mm-hmm. or of discontent in the in fact it could for some people be mostly upside is that right yes i don't see that that often to be honest i see because i don't think that the cultural structure is there to really support it so it's what's difficult is is that when you expose this idea to your friend group there's going to be people with the conventional model and the conventional idea that will ask questions and be suspicious and kind of implant ideas that kind of undermines the structure i actually do think that the structure can work and it does work for some people you know for sure you're absolutely right about that it's difficult though because culturally it's not fully supported and the consciousness is not at a level where we're able to actually handle it. So those who are making it work are genuinely Mm. evolutionary pioneers Mm. and they really have cultivated a strong community. And so just the utmost respect for anybody who's really making that work because it is a challenging path, but it's an unbelievable path of growth, Mm. like unbelievable. So I still can recommend this path. If you want to learn about yourself and you want to deal and grapple with these emotional forces, your own possessiveness, your own jealousy, your own self-love, you you walk this path, you'll be a better person for having been broken time and time again and having to put yourself back together. Yeah. So that's how that's what I really think about. It. I think about it as a path for growth. And for some people, potentially, they can make it a sustainable path. I just haven't seen it that often work in that way. Yeah. It's funny because I think about if someone wants to go down this path, you really got to question your intentions. Like, why do you want to go down this path? Because right. for me, when I hear about polyamory, I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to have different oh, yeah. partners. But that is like the high testosterone in me, like speaking to my, yeah, to my, to my body. So, um, yeah, I don't think I would be successful in it, honestly. And I'm also surprised that I can have this conversation right now because like, 10 years ago, uh, maybe not 10 years, 15 years ago, I was like really hardcore Jehovah's Witness Christian. And I would have not have even entertained this conversation. Mm-hmm. But um, but I'm glad we're having it. Well, it's interesting you say that because I found when we put out a call for questions about this, a lot of people have that knee-jerk reaction because they assume it's this weird sort of binary. It's either mm-hmm. monogamy or it is chaos. Mm-hmm. And there's chaos in either one of these, by the way. Totally. And you, there can be order. In fact, there are some terms we're going to be talking about today when we get to some of our callers here, which we'll get to in a second, because monogamy and non-monogamy, there's a whole, as we were doing photos downstairs, you're like, there's a whole world yeah. in between there. And so mm-hmm. I thought maybe we would address a bit of that. Let's move on to some of our callers here. Professor Sean, we have an anonymous caller. In the non-monogamy world, there's a pretty large acceptance of the term compersion. Loosely, it's explained as feeling pleasure from someone else's pleasure, even if you're not directly benefiting, and applied even more genuinely among the group that identifies ethical non-monogamists. Although this is quite a juxtaposition concept for people who believe that the terms ethical and non-monogamy can't be placed together. My question is for someone who experiences compersion to a fault. 
being that they continue to prioritize other people's pleasure over themselves to the point of feeling that it's more difficult to accept care from others than give care, even if it's not hurting them or sacrificing their own well-being, but it does isolate them and also hurt the people who want to give care. How can that person create a healthier relationship with their own needs or wants that directly benefit themselves and begin to heal the belief that no one will care or take care of them really consistently? And due to that pain, the answer was to care for others unconditionally and never let that be the case for people they care about because they themselves had never experienced it. And to a fault, continue the cycle of fear and rejection by not allowing good people to prove the belief wrong. In times when this person has tried to be vulnerable, they find the reality that people are imperfect and that that is good and okay, but still feels unsafe, acknowledging that this is largely due to confirmation bias. Also, for context, some people with deductive reasoning would wonder if this person has a past of abuse, and that would be correct. But in traditional CBT therapy, the concept of non-monogamy is not widely accepted, making this topic difficult to seek perspective on. For this person personally, through their experiences and overcoming their past and reaching for healing and love, they found hope and acceptance among people who do not shame complex sexuality that comes from broken pasts. They have learned to accept that overcoming trauma does change a person and the paths to healing and self-acceptance do not always look conventional. I think the key word here is complex. Let's get some terms out onto the table here. She talked briefly about compersion. That's something that comes up a lot in non-monogamous relationships. It's almost like an introductory word for people. Right. I've always used it to describe my relationship with my daughter because like, Whenever she experiences joy, it feels contagious. It's like real joy. And I notice that in people around me. So you can talk about compersion in a non-sexual or intimate way, but it tends to be used in these ethically non-monogamous relationships, which that term by itself also drives me a little bit crazy because there's plenty of ethical monogamous relationships, but plenty of non or unethical monogamous relationships as well. It having to use that term that way presupposes that monogamy is inherently ethical and therefore non-monogamous relationships are inherently unethical. But that doesn't seem to be the case. The The bigger problem that our anonymous caller is talking about here is some of the, the fear and the rejection, which you've expressed a bit as well. What insights do you have for her? Well, yeah, I mean, I think talking about ethical non-monogamy, there was never a more ethical relationship up to date than my polyamorous relationship because the honesty was at exactly 100. There was not a single thing that we had to hide from each other or would hide. So another term for that is kitchen table polyamory, where everything is out in the open. All of the partners are able to talk to each other. There's no secrets. There's nothing hidden. It's radical, 100% truth and 100% permission. And that is actually rare in most monogamous relationships that I've encountered. Even if actions aren't taken, thoughts cannot be shared because the thoughts are too volatile and chaotic and dangerous to share. If you find somebody attractive, if you feel yourself feeling something, well, you can't share that. That's not part of the agreement. So you stuff that in and you keep that little bit secret from your partner. So I found that that, this style of relationship with the radical permission allows you to have an even higher standard of ethics because there's nothing that you can't share, nothing you can't talk about. And we've I've replicated that in my now monogamous relationship with my wife because that was a prerequisite 
I wanted there to be radical communication and conversation. If either of us were attracted to anybody, we don't have to do anything about it, but we got to share it. Hmm. There's nothing that I want her to feel like she needs to keep secret from me. And there's nothing that I want to keep secret from her. So that standard of honesty was another thing that polyamory taught me. So then going to compersion. Compersion was always the goal. I wanted to feel the ecstasy that my partner felt when she was in sexual relation with another person. I just couldn't do it. Mm. Right. And I think a lot of people would make accusations of me. Oh, Aubrey, you know, Cuck Norris, the beta cuck, you know, who's enjoying cuckolding is a fantasy where you actually enjoy the idea of another man sleeping with your partner. I don't have that kink. It's just not in me at all. Yeah, so, some people would compliment you for not having that. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like that. I mean, and and praise be to those who have it because that makes things a lot easier, I'm sure, right? Because it's <laughs> yeah. like they're being aroused by their partner's arousal with another person. For me, I didn't have that. So it was a matter of love and consciousness. And I could touch it at certain points, but it was very difficult for me to maintain it. And so compersion, again, we're all familiar with compassion, the etymology of compassion is to be with someone in their suffering. Compersion, the etymology is to be with somebody in their pleasure, right? To really be with somebody in their pleasure. And to do that is to actually not be looking at them separately. It's to be on the inside of their pleasure. Mm. And so, yes, this can happen sexually in a sexual situation for sexual pleasure, but it happens all the time. Like, I think you can tell a good friend of yours if a good friend experiences something amazing then you feel all of the pleasure and joy and potentially even more pleasure and joy than that person feels. I remember it with good friends of mine that were fighters. You know, one of my best friends in the world is Aaron Rodgers, a football player. I remember when he beat the Cowboys last year and I was there at the game. Like the feeling that I felt because was like probably more elated than he even felt in that moment. And that's compersion. It's like really being with somebody in that sensation. Mm. The caller mentioned some things that were, you know, kind of conflating this type of relating to a trauma pattern or things like that. I think that's an oversimplification. And while that may be the case, sometimes this is just a choice and a solution for somebody who is dealing with this idea. Like, I don't want to live in a sexually passionless life. I don't have the tantric technology to find the stranger anew in my partner. So I'm going to engage in this practice because I want to be honest. I'm not willing to be unfaithful. So I'm going to engage in this out of my own volition. And that was my path. I've had a beautiful relationship with my mother and pretty much every woman on down the line. I had a pretty sketchy girlfriend in college one time. But other than that, it's been like epic, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not a wounding thing with the feminine. And it's not about me like wanting to claim trophies. I don't give a shit about that. Like every person I wanted to be with, I wanted to go as deep as I could until I could see the inner core of who they were and share that relation. So the idea that this is some kind of trauma bonding or trauma driven thing, to me, that's just false. It's just not true. And I'm, a, I'm the outlier. I mean, I'm the exception to that idea. And I don't know if that's exactly what she was saying, but it seemed to have that kind of implication. Well, there's also something about empathy that's in this question. And I think empathy is a bit of a, a bell curve. They're suffering on both ends. If you have no empathy at all for anyone ever, that can either cause suffering or it could be that there's some sort of trauma associated with that. You've shut off all empathy. 
But the other side of the bell curve is if you're feeling all the empathy, you're feeling the pain. So the etymology of empathy means to also feel their suffering, yeah. right? And so to feel the suffering, not just be with them with suffering, but to feel that suffering is true empathy. If you have intense, really turned up empathy, well, what happens? You are also going to suffer. By yeah. definition, you have to suffer. Mm. And so I think maybe part of that was, and I'm, I'm speaking for you at this point, but in your relationship, there was suffering there that the two of you were sharing when you were in a, a polyamorous relationship. Mm. And so the suffering can become contagious. Yeah, it can. And it's, um, you know, you have to, and I think she was also a bit concerned about somebody overgiving of themselves to give somebody pleasure and then not feeling the pleasure themselves. It's not compersion if you're not with them in their pleasure. So the whole concept that you're going to give somebody pleasure but not feel it, that's not compersion. That's self-sacrifice. Mm. That's a whole different thing, Ooh, right? Mm. Like it's a much different thing. If you're actually in compersion, you're both elevating your state of pleasure. Mm. You know, mm. it's not like... It's not like you're giving them this and it's costing you something. No, you're sharing in this in this state of emotional activation and aliveness. Yeah. I think empathy is one hell of a drug. And when it becomes a drug, it can really turn on you. I mean, when you experience someone else's pain, um, you're doing them a service and they will show you like, oh, thanks for being with me in my pain. Mm. And that feels good. So it's easy to get caught up in doing things for others. I, cause that's what I kind of heard from the caller was that someone gets caught up in empathy and they really don't focus on their own uh, pain or joy because they're so caught up in reflecting someone else's pain. So, I mean, empathy, like we put on this pedestal and I think that empathy is a great thing to have. We all need it. But when it becomes a drug, like it can, it can it really hold us back, especially with the situation she's talking about, about people who are abused and have these wounds that are trying to heal because it's, you come from that background where you've been abused, like you're used to feeling bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's like, in a weird way, it's security. It's like, you know, if you do a certain thing, you're going to feel bad about yourself and you'd rather, you know, have the devil, you know, than the, the devil you don't know. Yeah. And you take away that compersion. It introduces so many unhealthy elements in the relationship. Like if I'm making sacrifices for you, and I see myself as I'm doing you a favor, mm -hmm. right? Right. I, I, You're keeping I, I, score. There you go. Yeah. I have that martyrdom syndrome, and mm -hmm. then I resent you. Mm -hmm. Can compersion be cultivated? Yes, it can. It can, yeah. and it's a technology again. And I keep using the word technology because these are psycho technologies. I think we try to reduce our technology to like what's the new Apple update on the phone. That's one type of technology in mm -hmm. the material realm, but psycho technologies have been being cultivated by many cultures for thousands of years from the Hebrew Kabbalist lineage, which I've entered as a part of, to the Mahayana Buddhist lineage, to the Taoist lineages, to all of the tantric lineages, to so many more lineages that have cultivated psychotechnologies, either for meditative practices going inside to emotional practices of how you actually enter a state where you can join someone in their emotional frequency right? These are technologies that can be cultivated. And part of it is to be able to clear yourself of any jealousies, clear yourself of any judgments, clear yourself of anything that's withholding you. And then with volition, with intention, enter into their emotional state of rapture, joy, ecstasy. And to do that, you have to 
you have to really eliminate all of the comparison and, and all of the jealousy, anything like that, that you're feeling, and then be willing to surrender any aspect of your own ego identity and just jump in with them, jump into the waters of where they're at and meet them there. And it's a skill that can be cultivated. Yeah. As we wrap up this question, I was hoping maybe you could talk a bit about the tantric technology that you're experiencing in your own marriage now mm-hmm. and how you understand that and how you use it regularly. Yeah. So I'm currently working on a project with uh, a teacher, Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney, and it's called the Phenomenology of Eros. And the Phenomenology of Eros goes through seven different levels of sexual relating. And in those seven different levels, there's different technologies that you can use to actually encounter somebody in a new and deeper way and actually use your sexuality to reach parts of you that are different. Everything from healing sexing, where the idea isn't just the vital sexing, which is level one, just like the animality of the experience and just that thing that you see in all of the all of the movies where someone pins someone up against the wall and they're <laughs> making out and then it's on to the kitchen table and things are crashing around like that's great you know and that's one way to do it but it's not going to be all the time so like healing sexing is actually going in and going real slow feeling where there's any places where there's any trauma that's still left in the body and applying the at the right amount of love the right amount of questions asking what you know what do you need right now what is this like what does this touch feel like and of course some of it is intuitive and you're really working together that other parts involve you know what is what we call personality sexing which includes sexual theater which is all of the dominant and submissive play so you're playing out different roles for example and in those different roles you get to encounter an element of your partner that isn't normally available there like one of the old technologies of wearing a mask whether it was Commedia dell'arte or whether it was something else, is the mask allows you to embody some aspect that you normally wouldn't embody. It's a new identity. It's a new identity. So you take on a new identity, and through that new identity, a part of you gets to flourish and flower, and then you get to relate to a part of them through your different identity. So it's really two strangers meeting. You have different names. You have different roles. You have different polarities than your normal polarity. And that's incredibly rich, you know, portal to go in. And there's other different portals that you can actually enter into with intention that illuminate different aspects of your partner. Mm. Got another question here. This one's from Nastasia in Seattle, Washington. I'm Nastasia from Seattle and also a Patreon subscriber. So I'd love to get your perspective on how to communicate with other people, specifically men who are interested in pursuing me romantically or want a sexually exclusive situation with me that I am ethically non-monogamous and currently exploring solo polyamory. I come from a Catholic monogamous-based traditional upbringing, but during college separated myself from religion and accepted the fact that I am bisexual. I've had long serious relationships that have been both open and traditionally monogamous. However, I kept those details to myself and very rarely, if ever, mentioned to others. Over the last couple years, I've decided to lean into the ENM community a bit more and become more openly confident in non-traditional exploration and lifestyle choices. With that comes learning to navigate this topic to friends, family, and new intimate partners. 
I don't shout from the hilltops about it or feel like ENM is the only thing I'll pursue for the rest of my life, but I am trying to practice how to explain it early on enough so I don't accidentally hurt someone. Lastly, while I'm currently single, I have a deep connection with a couple I see semi-regularly already and I'm invested in prioritizing that relationship. How do I explain that to other people who may want to go out with me exclusively? Additionally, is it common or expected that as a solo poly person, I need to share with everyone that I am actively talking to or sleeping with other people? Or is it fine to just say I'm E&M and leave it at that? I'm not sure how transparent that needs to be. Aubrey, what I'm hearing here, to some extent from Nastasia's question is... How can I be in an open relationship without being judged by my friends, family, community, the people around me in a society that actually judges and worse, shames people for having something that is anywhere outside the norm? And by the way, mm. this is where minimalism comes in as well. As soon as we started talking about letting go of excess things and letting go of relationship clutter, letting go of calendar clutter, career clutter, whatever it might be, you get judged by the people around you. But no more so, or the place you're judged most probably is in this arena here of ethical non-monogamy or open relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> the one thing is, is that those people who are bought into the story of, you know, there's one way to do a relationship and that's the only way, they're going to defend that actually pretty vehemently. And, mm -hmm. uh, and what I've seen is the reason they're going to defend it is they're actually scared of what this opens up in their own mind. Because a lot of people, the people who I've found had the most difficulty with accepting this were the people who were a little bit frustrated in their relationship, but they've convinced themselves this is the only way and you just have to deal with it. Mm. But when you say, no, nah, there's another way, they're like, no, there's not another way. And they try to close that option down so it doesn't start to play with their mind mm. and give them a possibility like, what, you mean there's a different type of structure that I could use? Like, they don't really want to engage that. So to start to see that and know that actually you living this life is challenging and it's threatening to those people who've accepted the compromise of all right, this is just the way things are. I'm not really that happy, but nonetheless, this is the way it is. There's no other option. You give them another option, they're going to come at you. And, and that's just something that you have to be aware of and have compassion for them and their experience and be gentle with it. And just, you know, I've never, I never wanted to push. I never wanted to get into an argument. And you just say, hey, this works for me. This is what, this is what I'm called to. This is what my heart and spirit are called to. So that's how I dealt with the people who had those questions. But that isn't to say that I didn't lose friendships mm. over being non-monogamous. I lost some very, very important friendships in my life. For Why me. do you think that is? I think it was because it challenged one or the other of the, of the partners. Maybe one partner was afraid that their partner might actually want somebody else. And so this opened up this Pandora's box like, uh-oh, I hope my partner doesn't you know, get around Aubrey and Whitney too long and then get these crazy ideas and start wanting to see other people. So that was one. And then the other was people who were actually frustrated and like, don't tell me there's another option. Don't tell me that you can be with other lovers and it could be okay because I can't engage in that. You know, like I can't actually accept that. So it was typically one or both of those two reasons that mm -hmm. that happened. Mm -hmm. 
So to go to our second part of the question, which is how transparent do you need to be and when? For me, you know, I was also single at certain different points. And when you're single, you date. And there's a certain point where you talk about if you're dating other people. There's not, in my mind, a supposition that if you go on a date with somebody that I'm not seeing, I know I'm not dating anybody else, you know, like that conversation comes, you know, and, and that conversation sometimes comes early and sometimes comes after a couple dates where you realize like, yeah, you know, I'm seeing a couple people and you're still dating. You're not like together committed in a relationship with anybody. So at the point where things start to evolve, then I share it. Now, that isn't to say that sometimes right out of the gate, I didn't share it because I was very public. You know, I did podcasts on non-monogamy. I made posts. I wrote newsletters. So it was very out there. So I didn't want them, anybody to find out and be like, hey, man, I just Googled you and saw this podcast on polyamory. So I was very upfront with it. But I also don't feel like there's you're compelled to share all the details until that relationship becomes sexual and evolved in a way. And I think at the point that it's sexual, it is ethical to share all of your partnership so that somebody knows that, look, this is where the, this is the field. This is where it's at. But if it's a first date and you're out on coffee, you're just getting to know each other. You don't need to go, hey, and by the way, I'm seeing this couple and I'm really <laughs> feeling about it. Yeah. You don't even know if you like the person yet. You know, like you don't even know if you get along, yeah. you know? So I think there's a point where it becomes your ethical responsibility, but that point isn't immediate. You know, it's, you, it's something that you can kind of feel after you decide whether you've built a rapport with that person that you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> it sounds like not a uh, conversation starter with the with the first date, right? But also, you want to get that conversation in though before it, it turns sexual. Yes, yeah. I mean, you don't when you first meet someone, you don't walk up to them and shake their hand and say, "Hi, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn, and I'm in an open relationship." <laughs> yes, like, exactly. But yeah. there are some people who feel as though they'd like to disclose it sooner than later because mm -hmm. they also don't want to invest a bunch of time with someone and then realize like, oh, you know, this person is not open to this whatsoever. And I, I think that's where she is right now. The thing that I liked about her question, she was talking about how, hey, this may not be how it is forever. Right. And I think going into any scenario like that, up to and including marriage, just might not be how it's going to be forever. Mm -hmm. Understanding that, leaving the door open for change is the least dogmatic way to approach a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I say about this question is that there is an element of universality here. If you don't want to be intimate with someone, there might be millions of reasons for why you don't want to be intimate with them. And you don't necessarily have to share what those reasons are in order to say, I'm not interested, right? And so some of this comes down to simply giving ourselves the permission to say, I'm not interested in you. I'm not interested in what you're offering me. I'm not inter interested in this opportunity you're extending to me. And you can convey that respectfully without going into a whole bunch of details. Well, because I just got out of a tough relationship and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the process of healing. Or, you know, uh, I just lost somebody really important or I'm just not in a good place right now. Sometimes we feel the need to do that as a way of letting people down easy or getting them to still like us, even though we're turning them down. But sometimes you can just say, hey, I'm flattered. I appreciate the invite, but I'm, I'm not open right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not available right now. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to say uh, with respect to Arby's observations about why people get really defensive about this topic and disagree, I think there's a, a third interesting one as well, and that is people are often taught that to listen to an opposing point of view without being all over all over the person that's espousing it, without refuting it, that that's the same thing as agreeing. 
So I come from a religious background. I have a traditional view of marriage. And many people from that background feel like, well, if I let somebody else talk about a view that I don't subscribe to, uh uh-oh, Mm. I'm misrepresenting the faith, <laughs> right? Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not standing up for truth. In fact, uh, we, we saw a, a, what I thought was a pretty humorous version of this back in the day, like several years ago, uh, the rapper B.O.B., he, he, he went down the flat earth rabbit hole. <laughs> he was putting up a bunch of tweets about it and he was challenging a lot of people, right? And you saw the whole like mainstream community be like, we're not going to dignify this with a debate. We're not going to dignify this with a discussion. And there's that idea that if I allow someone the opportunity to talk to me about something that I don't agree with or that I question. I'm dignifying that viewpoint. And no, what you're actually dignifying is open discussion. You're dignifying critical thinking. You're dignifying truth. And you're dignifying a message that says, hey, we can have different views, have cordial conversation about it. And even if I don't agree with you now or at the end of the discussion, I can say I'm a better person because I've learned something from you and I've modeled for other people what it looks like to listen. That's how we learn. That's how we get better. And even if the agenda is to influence people, that's also how you become more persuasive, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The problem is when we, like, we just want to be right all the time. Yeah. And I think there's something about being on a pedestal with that. I mean, I love being right, you know? Yeah. But I try to, like, not go with that instinct of just trying to know everything all the time and have the best thing to say or, you know, one-ups people, which I have that inside of me, but I kind of lean towards what you're talking about. It's like, for me, the non-monogamous thing, it's, I'm in a monogamous relationship. It's great. Um, but I don't judge the non-monogamy. Like it's a conversation I can totally hold space for, even though that's not my preference. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the people maybe you want to divulge it to, uh, Nastasia are the ones who are willing to have a conversation with you if, cause it sounds like she needs to talk about it. Mm. So to find people who, you know, aren't going to judge you like, yeah, talk about it with them. There might be some people that you don't have to put it in their face all the time. Like if you got a religious grandmother, like, hey, Grandma, how's it going? Let me tell you about my uh, non-monogam- non-monogamous life. <laughs> well, yeah, I, Aubrey, I, I'd be fascinated in your perspective because also understanding there are a bunch of different types of non-monogamy. She called it solo poly. And she talked about being with a couple. And, and so I was just, before we did this episode, I was looking at all of these different sort of relationship types. And it can get really confusing to the person who isn't well-versed in that. Mm-hmm. When you... Account, encountered people who are in non-monogamous relationships. What were some of the most successful ones that you saw? So Tammy Nelson does a great job describing something called the monogamy continuum, right? And the monogamy continuum recognizes that everybody has a different idea of what monogamy is. So one example would be completely strict. You're not allowed to think about or actually you know, watch erotica or actually engage in any sexual energy towards another person. That would be at the at one end of the pole. And then another end of the pole is maybe you guys enjoy erotica together. It could be written erotica, it could be visual erotica, but you're allowed to actually experience fantasy in that way. And then there's other ones where, all right, you're allowed to hang out with somebody, but you can't have any kind of sexual relationship with them at all. You know, and then it starts to bridge into polyamory where it's, all right, you can have a purely sexual encounter with somebody, but there's no emotions that are allowed in that situation. And that's actually what Whitney and I tried first. We were Mm -hmm. like, listen, we're together. We're primary partners. Mm -hmm. If ever it gets emotional, we're going to cut it off. 
that's hard. That's hard because emotions follow these experiences. So the emotions develop and we're like, damn, like if I'm being honest, like there's emotions here. And then it was like, oh my God, what do we do? Our agreement's broken. And then it was like, all right, well, let's make allowance for this. And let's, so we had more and more rules at the start. And then those rules, we kind of had to reassess, reassess and understand human nature. And then, so the polyamory spectrum started to bridge into more and more freedom. And actually, we ultimately, I think, got to a place that was farther than either of us were actually comfortable with. And so if I was ever going to go down that path again, which is not my intention, but I'm also available to it, you know, and I also share that with my wife, like, listen, if this is a desire, this is not a deal breaker. Like I've been down there, I've been seasoned through this, through this path. And so if you feel something, you just share it with me and we'll figure it out, you know, because I trust myself, I'll be able, and I I don't, certainly don't want that to be the reality, but I trust that we'll be able to figure it out and make it work. And I actually know where the level is where I could actually tolerate it and where it would be actually intolerable. So everything from monogamy to polyamory has a spectrum and it's a spectrum of different agreements. Mm -hmm. And then there's other constellations where, you know, I have a friend who's in a three-way partnership. It's It's a throuple, basically where they're all monogamous to each other, but there's three people in that constellation and they're all monogamous with each other. And they, they're not allowed to see anybody else. They're just allowed to be with each other. And that's their constellation. So far, it's working pretty good, you know, and, and we'll see how it goes. The experiment is underway for mm-hmm. them in their unique way. But I like the idea of unique relationship agreements to meet your unique desires and unique capacities. Yeah. And the ability to... Mm change those relationships as time change. If you realize something as you realize, this isn't working for me. At first you realize these rules or these boundaries I've set up, there's maybe too many of them. Yeah, Because boundaries are great. They help you add clarity to your communications. But if you have a thousand and one boundaries and all of these different rules for the relationship, it's stifling, it's constricting. You feel mm. like you can't move, right? And so decluttering some of those rules, some of those boundaries was something you did over time and then decluttering it so much if you remove all the boundaries. Right. There's a term relationship anarchy, which is I think the far end of that non-monogamous spectrum. Oh, right? free for all. Yes. Mm. Yeah. There's no primary partner at mm-hmm. all, right? You are the primary partner with yourself, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and then anyone else, there's no hierarchy within the relationship. And for someone like me, that seems incredibly chaotic. But I think for someone else, that might seem incredibly freeing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So uh, one comment, one question. My comment is, I I have a difficult time just handling three friends. (laughs) (laughs) So man, like, okay, anyway. But uh, one question for you. Usually when you do something unconventional, you become like a a voice for it, an apologist Mm. for it, even if you don't want to, because everybody's hitting you up with the, but what about this? Or how about that? When you went back, or I should say, when you went forward into a monogamous relationship, like what you're in now, did that create some, some challenges for you having been such a strong voice for this way? Um, did, Did people look at you as backtracking did, did that, yeah, did that create any difficulty for you? Did you lose even more friends this <laughs> yeah, time <right>. around? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think there was, in general, a collective sigh of relief. 
Mm. Right, mm. like, oh my God, thank God, <laughs> you know, thank you know, every, come I, to his senses, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So oh, there wow. was, there's more people who were actually excited about that. Mm. And again, you know, my wife and I, we are on a particular aspect of the monogamy continuum that is closer to polyamory, but doesn't cross that line. Polyamory being many loves, polyamory, many loves, and so we have boundaries about. No, no, no. We're not going to be in love with anybody else. But mm-hmm. there's freedom to actually explore up to that point where there would be many loves. And and I don't think it's necessary to go into the private details of that. But we found this place that's very, very comfortable for us and actually, mm-hmm. you know, adds a lot to our relationship. So I think with my experience, and she'd also had experience in a polyamorous container, that ultimately we're like, all right, we know what's too far. But up to that point, it's pretty exciting and it's pretty, it feels pretty good. And so we've kind of found our own way in the journey where, I mean, my relationship with my wife is heaven. Like I love her so much and I'm so grateful that we are exactly where we are and I wouldn't change a certain, wouldn't change a thing. And to me, you know, you, you go to weddings and stuff and you hear all the old timers be like, you know, and it's about compromise. And when you compromise enough and you, you stick with it and then it's uh, that's how you do a marriage thing. And I'm like, that's not for me. I don't want to fucking compromise. I want to be thrilled. I want to be in the exact situation that I want to be in. And that's where I find myself now. So that's the story that I'm able to tell is like, I've done the full gamut. I've found and located myself exactly where I want to be, exactly where my wife wants to be, where neither one of us have any compromise. And we're like, yep, this is it. And again, if things shift and we shift, all right, we'll deal with that. We'll try to find, we'll figure it out. And there may be some compromise at that point, but you know, all blessings for what exists right now, we're in the exact place where we're truly, truly thrilled in love and happy. That's awesome. The twang in that commentary, I'll tell you what. <laughs> that was funny, dude. Yeah. Well, it's easy for them, though, because they both models and personal trainers. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, a, as a personal trainer. <laughs> Professor Sean, we got another question the here. promiscuous personal trainer. <laughs> promiscuous Just preface personal. every asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I got one question before we move on. Do you put this in your dating profile? That's the one thing I wanted to ask. Like, there's so much online dating now. Like, do you put in the dating profile right up front? Like, hey, I am non-monogamous. I think you see E-N or C-N-M all the time, yeah. which is consensual non non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy, you tend to see that pretty upfront. I mean, uh, dating profiles seem to be the place to be the most upfront because you have like less than a second, right? To to impress someone. And there's certain dating apps like the app Hinge is actually designed for consensual Uh non-monogamy. It's kind of like what's one of their home bases actually for that app. And there's other apps that are, you know, designed for actually more of a conventional relationship and the expectations are there. And then there's a lot of apps that are on the in-between where there's some fluidity and flexibility with it. So I think there's a, there's a lot of different technologies that you can use. And the way that I look at all of these dating app technologies is this is just a way to actually leverage technology to meet more people. The idea that you're going to bump into somebody and that's the only opportunity you have to meet them all right. I mean, that's one way to do it, but there's so many amazing people out there. So this just increases your chances of meeting somebody epic. Mm. A question here from Colton. I'm Colton from Baltimore. Proud Patreon subscriber. 
I discovered I was gay before it was acceptable in mainstream society, which encouraged me to question monogamy. And likewise, my husband also came into our relationship knowing he wanted some form of non-monogamy. Neither of us had the experience or knowledge to firmly identify what that looked like. But after some research, lots of experimenting, even more self-reflection and some hurt feelings, I'm not sure that our ideal relationship structures match. Both of us agree on having a primary partner. I prefer something where all couples are shared, like a thruple or two couples who date each other. He prefers something more compartmentalized, where each partner has external relationships, be they casual or serious. How do you bridge a gap in ideal relationship structures in a manner that preserves relationship security and minimizes hurt feelings for all partners involved? Question two. I don't need full-on polyamory, but I know I'm not built for lifelong monogamy. For my partner, polyamory isn't necessary, but the ability and freedom to choose other partners is. He doesn't want to feel owned, and I don't want the emotional labor of owning him. I find myself unable to detangle ownership and relationship security, though. How do you preserve the feeling of security in a relationship while extricating the ownership aspect of it? Aubrey, so this idea of security, security can be a bit of a misnomer, right? Because you can feel incredibly insecure in a committed, monogamous relationship. In fact, quite often, insecurity is birthed out of the stories that we tell ourselves about our relationship with that person. Oh no, they must be looking at someone else and therefore I am, as you were illustrating earlier, I am inadequate. I need to learn Mm -hmm. how to become a fighter Mm -hmm. or a dancer or a pilot or whatever it might be. It's it's sort of doing the right things in the right sequence in order to garner someone's love. That's a a gross misunderstanding of, of love, obviously. But here with Colton, what we're really talking about is they have similar desires, but they're not on the same page, it seems like. I'm sure you've seen this before. What would you have to say to Colton? It seems like what really needs to be established is, you know, reifying, which is to make real this idea of primary partnership. And this was actually where I think Whitney and I made, you know, if you want to call it mistakes, everything I feel like is a learning opportunity and experience, but we didn't do enough to really establish our primary partnership. I was actually too libertarian in my own nature and didn't actually acknowledge how much I needed to feel like the primary partner. And I also didn't acknowledge how much she needed to feel like that. So we allowed ourselves to actually get into situations that fundamentally challenge that feeling of the other person being primary. And that is the choices that we take. And ultimately, what I feel like needs to happen is you have to have a proven understanding that you will fold all cards to the ace So no matter what is dealt in your hand and all of the other people, at any point where your partner is uncomfortable, you fold that relationship and say, I fold all cards to the ace. This is uncomfortable for you. You're you're my primary partner. You're the one. I fold all the cards. No questions asked. I'll get on Mm -hmm. the phone right now and I'll say, you know, my love for my, you know, buddy or whatever you want to fucking say, like, this isn't going to work, you know, the primary partnership, like it's not really working for us here. And and you just are willing to fold that relationship. And you have to really know that you have to know that your partner is going to have that. And so what I would invite for him is, is exploring like, all right, how can you establish that 
solidity of the primary partnership and then still allow the freedom that would make both sides kind of comfortable in that. But I think it's really about knowing that the primary partnership is primary and everything else is secondary. And when any kind of pressure comes up, you fold all cards to the ace. Mm -hmm. But there will be times in some relationships where the expectations become unreasonable, right? right? And so, yes, I continue to fold all cards, but then the expectations get ratcheted up because every time I acquiesce to your demands or your preferences, and at some point, then you lose your own autonomy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? (laughs) Yeah, so you you may reach an impasse. You may reach an impasse where the demands are basically you're continuing to fold cards before it's even necessary and and it's it's actually you're not actually being able to express yourself as freely as you desire and that may be a fundamental mismatch of your desired structure and that's unfortunate you know and that's a place where the relationship may not be the right relationship for you you guys may not be able to make it work in the way mm-hmm. that you desire to make it work And that's just the, you know, the unfortunate truth about that is you may actually find yourself in a situation where we just don't agree with how we want to do that. And so, you know, with with a breath of kindness and love, you know, Mm. just allow that separation to be graceful. Mm. And that's, that may be the place that you end up getting to. Yeah. So Colton and his partner, they both want to be poly, but you talked about the spectrum earlier. So they're on these Mm -hmm. different parts of the spectrum. Like, first off, I just want to commend Colton and his partner for like, that's vulnerable, right? He talked about the pain that he's had to go through, like Mm. experiencing this and for them to stick with each other. That's, that's inspiring. So uh, thanks for sharing that, Colton. But yeah, I mean, uh, just kind of reiterating what you're, what you're saying here. It's like, if they can't get on the same page on the same part of the spectrum, there might have to be a certain point where they're like, yeah, I love you, but I'm not willing to do what you want me to do and you're not willing to do what I need you to do. And, you know, we can still be friends or whatever, but mm-hmm. yeah, it might come to a point at an impasse like you're talking about. I mean, that was the first way it started with, with Whitney. We were in a monogamous relationship for a year and a half. And then I realized like, this isn't working for me. I want to be polyamorous. And she's like, great, I'm out. See you later. And I was like, damn, that sucks. Cause I really love you, but all right, I understand. Like I, I really do need this. And then, you know, three, four months later, she's like, man, I still love you too. I'm going to give this a try. And so she had the courage to give it a try. And then she really got into it and she like started to like it. And then I, and then the difficulty was for me. I was like, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> you know, and, and so, and we were in this kind of dance of figuring it out and, and just also just want to say like so grateful for Whitney for going with me on this journey and teaching me so much in the process and I have nothing but the utmost love and respect and gratitude for this entire chapter that we shared and to all of the other paramours hers and mine like just the utmost gratitude for everything that I was able to learn from that experience yeah what a lesson yeah that's awesome yeah Yeah. Yeah. a lot of this goes back to to your earlier distinction um the generosity versus martyrdom, right? Like when we're, when we're, fo- how did you describe it? Folding up the- uh, Fold all cards to the ace. Yeah. So in, yeah. in five card draw poker, if you have an ace, you can fold, you can turn in four cards. Usually you can turn in three, but if you got an ace, you can turn in four, get four new cards for the ace. So, so it's like fold all cards to the ace is kind of the metaphor from poker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you make that kind of move, you got to make it with the sense of like, hey, 
this is intrinsically valuable for me. Even if things don't go in a way that I expect, I'm cool with having made this move because this Mm -hmm. is a reflection of the person that I want to be. But if you're making it as a kind of transaction, I'm going to be bitter unless you react a certain way, then you got to be honest with yourself about that and say, okay, I'm not going to make that move because I'm going to protect you from what I act like when I think of myself as a martyr, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. My wife has a podcast called How to Love. And one thing she talks about that I think really stands out for Colton and his husband here is understanding whether or not your relationship is compatible. Because you might love someone, deeply love someone. You see them mm. for who they are. You're not trying to change them, manipulate them. You're not trying to lie to them. You're, you love them. And you might also lust them. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of chemistry between the two of you, right? And that can be wonderful. And as Aubrey said, that generally tends to fade over time unless you find ways to recreate it, the, the novelty or the newness. But where, where relationships go wrong 98% of the time is compatibility. Mm-hmm. There just isn't a compatibility. You want two radically different things. One person wants to live in LA. The other person wants to live in New York. Now, can you get around that? Yeah, with a long distance relationship. But if you couple in some other incompatibilities there, I also want to see you every day and you want to live in a different city. Okay, we're just fundamentally incompatible. That doesn't mean you're wrong or bad. Quite often what we try to do is we either change the other person, Colton. You know, I'll just get my husband to change. Mm. If I could change his preferences, then of course I'll continue to love him. Well, that's not love. That's conditional love, right? And then what's the other side of that? I will change myself. But you don't ever really change yourself in that order. What you do is you change your behaviors. But a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right, Is, is the old apothem. And so what happens if you're trying to change yourself or trying to change someone else so much that you're bending so much that you break? It's possible that you're incompatible. And I'm not saying you're incompatible with your husband, Colton. That actually doesn't sound like the case. It sounds like some of your preferences might be incompatible. And understanding when there's an incompatibility, it might be that over time you become incompatible. You were compatible a year ago or a decade ago, but you're not compatible now. And it's okay to walk away because otherwise it's just an obligatory relationship and that doesn't feel good for anyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've learned, there's a model of relationship that I'm actually going to be teaching in a, in a course that I'm calling from solo to sacred union. Um, So as I explain this, if anybody's interested, you can go aubreymarcus.com slash relationship and you'll check it out and see if this is interesting to you. But there's we'll three... We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Too. So there's three stages of relationship. The first is rollmate. And that means it's a kind of traditional idea of you're doing this for me. I'm doing this for you. I'm going to go acquire these resources. You're going to handle this thing. I'm going to offer this, this type of affection to you. You're going to offer this. It has that kind of transactional nature. And you're trying to reach a level of reciprocity where you're both contributing to the partnership in a, in a relatively equal way. Now, this can become squirrely when somebody actually over prioritizes one thing and they have a value structure. Well, well, I I make all the money. So that means you have to do everything else. I don't need it. Well, that's just overvaluing money as the contribution to their. So you have to sort out what actual reciprocity looks like in the role mate level. Okay. So then you include that and transcend it into the soulmate level of relating. And at the soulmate level of relating, that's when you're looking deeply into your partner's eyes and you're looking to see their soul essence and to share your own soul essence, radical vulnerability. It's just you and them. You could be 
in a hotel room with them for a week and you're just going to go in and talk about all of the traumas that you feel, all the love you feel, and it's radically focused eye to eye with your partner. Now, a lot of people put that up as like the highest level of relating, but that needs to be included and also transcended, in my opinion, for a relationship to truly work into what we call the whole mate level of relationship, W-H-O-L-E, whole mate relating. And that's where instead of just looking into each other's eyes, which is included, same with the role mate, it's all included in whole mate, you share, you grab each other's hand and you look at a shared horizon and you say, what is our partnership going to do together? How are we cumulatively together going to change the world, going to change a family, going to change and going to work towards a common goal? And that is actually what I think is most necessary with compatibility is to say, we share the same mission. And we share, and when you really share the same mission with your partner, at that point, there's a strength that you have that transcends the role mate equality of reciprocity, transcends the soulmate of I really see you and you see me. And it says, now we're together in this bigger thing. And that actually helps settle all of the different things because you know you and your partner are with each other to the end towards this mission. Now, whether you stay in a primary partnership or not, still you understand like we are homemates facing this same shared horizon and we're in this together. And that really helps settle everything out. Mm. It feels like a a strong relationship too. And Mm. that type of relationship sounds like it could be monogamous or non-monogamous. Totally. You can be a whole mate with someone uh, because you have that shared vision, that shared mission mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Yep. Let's ask some questions from social media. Alabama, we got one from Melanie on Facebook. What do monogamy and open relationships have to do with minimalism? Isn't that just a different type of hoarding? So hoarding, like relationship hoarding in a way, and I suppose it could be. TK, you touched on this earlier, if you want to expand at all on your initial thoughts, because you were telling me before we started recording, like this seems to come up every episode that we don't talk about putting your stuff in boxes, which we don't talk about that much, (laughs) really. That's boring to talk about. (laughs) And I don't ask this question condescendingly, but, but, but curiously, I, what is it about minimalism that makes people question every topic that isn't about luxury goods Mm. and storage facilities? We can talk about, I mean, we, we had uh, Nedra come on the show and talk about family drama. And we're talking about like the excess of trauma that we take on. And we're still getting, what does this have to do with minimalism? Mm. What does this have to do with minimalism? That doesn't make me mad. I mean, it's not like, you know, that infringes on our freedom to talk about the things that we want to talk about. But it's fascinating to me that, that there is this understanding of minimalism that says, hey, unless you're talking about privileged people's problems, or unless you're talking about luxury goods and moving boxes, um, then then you guys need to be a little bit more honest about what you're doing here and change the name of this show. Mm. <laughs> you know, but it, it's always been pretty, like even when I used to come on as a guest a lot, it's always been pretty clear to me that everything you're talking about is like downsizing the things that, you know, decrease your own quality of life. You're getting rid of the things yeah. that are in the way. Ultimately, when we talk about minimalism, yes, it often starts with the stuff and people have questions about the stuff. And so I think that's yeah. why it comes up. But what is clutter? What is hoarding? Hoarding is holding on to things that get in the way, clinging to things that get in the way. And so, yes, if 
you are in a non-monogamous relationship and it's getting in the way of your primary partner, that is a type of hoarding. It's a type of relationship clutter. But holding on to a marriage that's been dead for 20 years is also a type of hoarding. Mm. And I'm sure you've, you've seen this. There's plenty of memes about it as well, Aubrey, but I'd love to, to, to hear some insights from you for, for Melanie. Is if we're talking about simplifying our lives, I think the thing that we want to simplify after we deal with the stuff, one of the things most important is simplifying our relationships. I mean, the, the, to me, the stuff is a metaphor for actually the clarity of the way that you relate to everything, right? Like if you can get to a place where you're not attached to anything you have, but there's stuff all around, but you're actually not attached to it and it doesn't affect your consciousness, well, that's achieving the goal. Con- the moving the stuff is just one way to affect your consciousness. That's right. And so... If you're in a relationship structure where you're not constantly thinking about, is this the right relationship? Is this going on? I mean, I love my wife so much, but I hardly ever thinking about the relationship. It's just there and it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and we engage with each other, but it's nothing that is constantly burdening my mind. Now, in the polyamorous days, it was constantly weighing on me. So this was something that was not abiding by minimalist doctrine because it was creating a lot of different mental, exhaustive, cluttering ideas. So you could call that hoarding. You could call that just complexity and chaos. And it was a path to evolution. And sometimes that chaos is a path of growth, you know, like adding more things to your backpack when you're climbing up a mountain, it's going to get you stronger, but it's certainly not the minimalist way to actually make it up Everest, you know, and now I just feel light and clean because every aspect of the relationship is settled and sorted. And it doesn't mean there won't be conversations that have to come up every now and then, but it's not a weight that I'm carrying anymore because I've found that exact point for me on the monogamy continuum in the right right relationship structure. Everything is smooth and everything is clear. And so I'm able to be fully present with anybody wherever I'm at because I'm not thinking about uh, what's going on with my relationship. I wonder what my wife's thinking. I wonder what's going on. It's just the simplicity of this is right. This is right. I know what I'm doing and it's exactly what I want. It sounds like there was Mm -hmm. a lot of mental clutter there in your polyamorous relationship. And I imagine for some other people, they could be in a marriage where, and they want really? out of it, but they're stuck there. So it's also creating that, that mental clutter. Yeah, I mean, they get around their buddies and what do they do? You, you know, they talk about their marriage all the time. You know, you're just griping about this and griping mm, about that. Yeah. And you get in these different cycles where, you know, the, the women are talking about their husbands, the men are talking about their wives. And of course, this is, you know, heteronormative dis- description, but it, it applies to all forms of sexuality, right? It's like you get around and that's the first thing you want to talk about. You get with your boys and you're like talking about all of this relationship and the challenges and blah, blah, blah. That's stuff that you're carrying that actually prevents you to get to the deeper layers of what's possible in the intimacy, even with your friends or your family. Yeah. Man, you know, it's funny, going back to your question about people going right to the stuff and the luxury goods with minimalism. I think that's for a couple of reasons, man. Um, first off, that's where it started with Josh and I. I mean, we had so much debt because of all the crap we were buying. It was like we had to regain control of our finances. 
And then, you know, as we've gone down this road, we've realized like there's just so much more clutter in our lives than just the stuff. So I think that's, you know, reason one is kind of that conditioning. We're all trying to buy our way to happiness and we're going into debt to do it. And I think the other reason too is like, it's a very good straw man argument to say, well, minimalism is just about the stuff and what a privileged problem to have. And that's, uh, with that argument, then I would agree with that, that sentiment. But minimalism, yeah, as we're talking about here, it goes so much more further than just that, that stuff. Yeah, and I think one of the connections between like the things that Aubrey's saying about love and relationships and, and the message of minimalism is that, that there are basically these two general paths to fulfillment. There's like fulfillment through consumption, where we treat ourselves like these passive receptacles of pleasure, pour the pleasure into me, right? Mm-hmm. Like give me some amusement that can just mm-hmm. make me feel good or fulfillment through contribution and creativity where I actively participate in the creative process. I look for ways to give. I look for ways to facilitate experiences. I look for ways to fully engage, you know? Um, think of it like drinking a cup of tea. If you dump a bunch of sugar into that cup of tea, you don't need to be mindful when you drink it. There's like, it's so exploding with flavor that you just taste it without effort, right? That's the the path of consumption. But to just drink it without any sugar, you got to be fully present. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of flavor in there, but you got to be present. You got to be mindful. And a lot of the things that Aubrey is saying about what he's doing in his monogamous relationship that separates him from the guys that are just going to the bar every day, hating on their wives, is that he's being mindful as he goes to mm-hmm. it because of what he's learned from these other experiences. And he's saying, I can, I can experience this depth that I was seeking in this relationship. I can just keep going deeper. I can keep expanding. And minimalism is about doing that with everything. Like even if you don't have a lot of stuff, you can just keep going deep and deep by elevating your consciousness, mm-hmm. by, by cultivating you know, that sense of expansiveness in your soul. And you can bring a lot of intentionality to your experience. So for me, the connection's pretty direct. But yeah. you tell me, man, you're the, you're the trainer and the entrepreneur <laughs> and the model and the, model. And the educator. So you let me know if I'm on hey, track. You're, 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 absolutely, you're absolutely on track. You know, it's like if you go on a long fast and for anybody who's been on a long fast, I remember I was on a five-day fast and I had a cashew when I was coming out of it. And this cashew was the greatest thing I've ever eaten in my life. And I was like, holy shit, cashews. Oh my God. What a miracle nut this cashew is. I've never fully appreciated a cashew that way. And same when I went, I went into a six-day darkness retreat. Actually, there's a documentary out about it. It's called Awake in the Darkness, about my time in the darkness. And in a darkness retreat, you're in absolute black absolute silence and absolute isolation from everybody else. I'm not talking dark. I'm talking black, no sight, not a pinprick of light. There is no differentiation between your eyes open or eyes closed, period, for six days. So it's just you and yourself. This is an extreme version of temporary minimalism, right? Small Mm. room, all black, There's a couple food drops that come in in a darked out hallway where you still don't get to see the light. You just go in, you feel around for things. I can't tell you how many times I put my fucking hand in avocado toast (laughs) trying to feel out whatever (laughs) I got. But in that experience, then you go back out into the light. And when I took my, you know, they have a mindful that blocks out a light and they walked me to the outside and then it was sunset and I'm in Germany in the black forest overlooking a valley that leads into France And I open up my blindfold and I see light for the first time in six days. 
And I just started weeping because I realized how much I take for granted everything that I see. Yeah. And it was so, so beautiful. Yeah. And so I think, you know, for anybody who really wants to understand at least my understanding of minimalism, take everything away and then realize how much you appreciate everything else and how little you need to be happy. You know, even Burning Man was another great example of this. Burning Man is a crazy, wild festival of fire and sound and lasers and all kinds of crazy shit. But time and again, the most fun I have at Burning Man is me and the homies in the RV, small mm-hmm. little space. Mm-hmm. And that RV could be anywhere in the fucking world, but we're just there together. We got nothing to do. Our cell phones don't work. And we're just laughing with the homies. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that, you're like, man, all I need is an RV to have the best time of my life. Holy shit. It starts to recalibrate your understanding. And I'm not one that feels like I need to get rid of all my things. I just need to get rid of all my attachments to all my things and recognize that really all I need is some cashews to light my mouth on fire. And really all I need is some friends in an RV to really be the happiest and live the best day of my life. Yeah. And that, Ladies and gentlemen, Aubrey oh, Marcus. Yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. Oh. Thanks so much for being here, man. Yeah, that was for awesome. Sure. That's uh, for we'll sure. put a link to his podcast in the show notes. Also, the new course that he mentioned as well. Is there anywhere else we should send folks? Yeah, I mean, if you're interested in this, Solo to Sacred Union, it's going to talk about relationship structure. It's going to talk about these technologies. It's going to talk about dating. It's going to talk about self-love. It's going to talk about moving into, we didn't really talk about it, like what does sacred union mean, which is how I would define my relationship with my partner, Vailana, which is a lot about folding all cards to the ace, but it actually transcends that as well. So again, aubreymarcus.com slash relationship. If you're interested in this topic, and yeah, otherwise, follow me on Instagram, at Aubrey Marcus, whatever. Yeah. I'm around. So grateful for you, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thanks for having Thank this you. For sure. Yeah. For sure. That yeah. was awesome. Thanks, fam. Welcome back to The Minimalists. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. During the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. And we have a question today from Anonymous. It's a lot to ask for one person to be your everything. Love is limitless. Why put a limit on how much of it you can give or receive? Now, TK, I know when this question is asked, we often talk about love. I don't think we know what we're talking about when we talk about love most of the time. Hmm. We use that word colloquially, and I get it. Quite often when we say love, what we're really saying is I like it very much. Yeah. Oh, I love this new microphone. No, that's not what we're talking about. We talk about love. When we talk about love, it's to see someone for who they are without trying to change them Mm. and without trying to manipulate them, persuade them, convince them, drag them to my point of view. But quite often when we're talking about love, we're talking about our attachment to someone else, our clinging to someone else. And I would posit that clinging actually blocks love. It gets in the way. Now, Ryan, you had a a bit of a different view on this question or maybe a more nuanced view on this question. It seems like this person may be in an open relationship or a poly relationship, which potentially are are, are potentially two different things here. So what were your thoughts on on the meaning of this question? Well, it it seems to me like they're trying to make an excuse to hoard love. 
and to have an excess of love, which um, I think when you have that attitude towards love, eventually um, it, it is going to feel like hoarding. It's, I mean, especially when you take a, a measurement to it. Can I read my answer? Yeah, you got something pithy? Put yeah. some 60 seconds on the clock, Prof. So there is no measuring stick for love. To love someone is to see them, appreciate them, and accept them for who they are, warts and all. And as soon as you start to measure love, as soon as you start to keep track of what one person does for another, what they did for me, it's a losing game. Yes. You will start to, you will start to harbor resentment because eventually you're going to feel that, that it's off balance one way or the other. So to love someone, whether it's monogamy or non-monogamy, that love can be endless. It doesn't matter if it's one person or many people. I think there's a, there's a deep well when it comes to love. And we don't have to measure how deep that well is. Mm. I mean, to love someone really like in a, like in a monogamous relationship, it's kind of like there's this like third entity that you're serving. You're not serving the person. You are serving the relationship. And then when you can get on the same, what, what Aubrey was talking about, when you, when you get on the same page on what your relationship's uh, mission is, like that's a beautiful thing to serve. And you can't give it enough love. I think you can always give that relationship love. And some people like to do it in a non-monogamous way. And that's okay too. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. Right under a minute. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so TK, let's let's expand on this because Ryan and I have radically different views on this. And I think it's okay. I think it's actually helpful and maybe even insightful for the audience because I don't see a separate relationship. I think there is no such thing as a relationship. Whether you are in a monogamous relationship or a non-monogamous relationship, there isn't a separate thing. That is just hmm. a word that allows us... It's a, it's a signpost. When I'm driving hmm. down the 101 to get to Los Angeles... I see a sign that says Los Angeles, 4,100,372, whatever, people. And that's fine. It's a signpost. But that sign itself is not actually Los Angeles. And if I were to mistake that sign for Los, oh, there's Los Angeles because it says Los Angeles on the sign. And so when we're talking about a relationship, I don't see that there's some sort of third entity here. Hmm. I see it as I arrive and this other person arrives. Ryan and I have a relationship only in so far as how we interact with one another. And it could be daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever. I have relationships with people I, I talk to once a year. You know, I have a good friend back in Ohio. We'll talk once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. And there is some sort of, we are in relationship, but there's not a third entity for me the way that I see it. And he sees it differently. Yeah. And he sees it in a way that's helpful for him. Exactly. And that way isn't helpful for me. Right. And, and you know, I think, you're getting caught up in the definition of a relationship, which I know we hate getting caught up in definitions. But the word relationship for me is more of an ethereal thing. And really, when he, when Aubrey was talking about that wholeness level, like that's what I'm talking about. Because there isn't this like, I'm going to do something for you. You do something for me. We're in this together. We're, mm -hmm. we're with each other through thick and thin. It's like, what are we both serving together? Mm -hmm. And that's really um, what relationship means to me. And we use metaphors all the time to help yes. us understand different things. And yes, the third entity might make sense for you me and it may not make sense for you and that's okay. I mean, it makes Josh wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I love when people talk about definitions. I have never at any point in my life ever been irritated or inconvenienced when someone pressed me for a definition or felt the need to articulate their own because <laughs> for me, definitions aren't dogmas. 
They're not commandments that we have to obey. All definitions, even even the ones in the dictionary, are simply descriptions created by human beings of what some people have meant when they use a word. And when we communicate with one another, it's helpful to know what we're talking about. So if you tell me, I mean this, even if that's not my definition, well, it's okay. Now I know what you mean by that word and we won't waste any valuable time having disagreements over things that we actually have a shared understanding over. So I think talking about definitions is one of the most underrated, (laughs) underdone things in conversation. Seriously. What did it for me was when Bill Clinton was like, define the word the. Was it the? No, is. Is. That's what what the definition of is. What is the definition of is to you? I'm like, oh boy. Let's give him 60 seconds. Otherwise, he'll talk all day. (laughs) TK Coleman, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, man. Love does not create the limits. Love is that which creates through the limits. Love isn't about artificially imposing constraints on people in the name of romance, in the name of friendship, in the name of family. Love is about accepting, acknowledging, and appreciating, and affirming the constraints that are already there, and then figuring out a way, how can I be authentically me, and how can I support you in your quest to be authentically you, as we work together to co-create the most beautiful experience we can within the context of what we call relationship. Mm. That's what love's all about. Yeah. Give me 60 seconds, Prof. And maybe we'll unpack it together, the three of us. Clinging to love, clinging to love is like clinging to water. The harder you clench, the faster it disappears. Mm. We've all been in a relationship with someone where something is a bit off. Mm. Maybe they don't feel the same way they used to feel about me. Mm. Oh, what's wrong? Oh, TK, please tell me what, what's wrong. Mm. And then I cling tighter and tighter and tighter until what happens? I start to strangle you. I actually strangle the love out of the relationship. If I try to cling to water that's in my hand, I open my hand and none is left. If I cling to a relationship and I cling tighter and tighter and tighter, I open my hand to realize, oh, the love is gone because of my clenching, because of my clinging, because of my attachment. Those attachments aren't love. Attachment gets in the way of love. It blocks love. And the way that we can love Mm. someone is to cease clinging to them because then you can actually see them for who they are. And that's what love is. Mm. Man, what you just Mm. said is so important um, because there are these different stages of a relationship. There's like that lust that you first have. And then Aubrey was talking about it. That starts to wane. People don't know what to do. And they cling to that lust because they don't know how to evolve their love with their partner. And um, yeah, and what you're saying is really encouraging people to not cling to the love they wish they had mm-hmm. and cling to what love actually is in the moment with whoever they're with. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot more about open relationships coming up on the private podcast. We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream in a moment as well. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Did you know over on Patreon, we have three different minimalism series. We have five episodes of something called Relationship with Less. Last, uh, well, a couple years ago now, when we released our book, Love People Use Things, I did this five-part series, uh, and I just sort of walked through our relationship with less, these different relationships that we have in our lives. And so when people are always asking, what does this have to do with minimalism? What does this have to do with minimalism? Yeah, yeah. I will show you. 
And in fact, there's an entire five-part series. TK was actually present for one of those as well. You can find all five of those over at patreon.com slash The Minimalist. Also, five episodes of Minimalism Today. I turned myself into a therapist for five little episodes where I called up patrons on the phone and we just talked about whatever they were struggling with. Yeah. Hey, what are you struggling with right now? Some people was stuff, some people was relationships, some people was past trauma, whatever it was. Let's break that down together. And also during the uh, the pandemic, we had 50 quarantine conversations, including one, one of my favorites with uh, Dan Savage, my favorite sex advice columnist. He's a great podcaster, the Savage Love podcast, where he talks about monogamy and non-monogamy relationships and sex advice. And we did a conversation with him over there. Patreon.com slash The Minimalist. You can find all 50 of those quarantine conversations, five episodes of Minimalism Today, five episodes of Relationship with Less, and of course, our weekly maximal episodes over there. Speaking of Patreon, Malabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us? We have a question here from Amber. How do you bring up the subject of wanting to expand into an open relationship with a partner you've been with for several years? Let's start by identifying how not to talk about it. Quite often, the things that are most fraught, the most stressful, the most worrisome, we will bring them up at the most inopportune times. Mm. We can all think about a time that we had in our lives where it's like, this thing's really stressing me out. It's weighing on my mind. I've got this mental clutter, but I'm going to wait two minutes before my wife's trying to run out the door. (laughs) She's grabbing the purse. The daughter's over here. Hey, uh, sweetheart, can I talk to you about opening the relationship real quick? I just want to throw that out there. You think about it, and then we'll talk about it later. (laughs) While you're on your way to work. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness. Now, now the opposite the opposite of that is also true quite often because there's never the absolute perfect time to talk about these difficult conversations. What happens? We never talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so well, quite often what I do is I set a deadline for myself. Hey, I know this is a really important conversation that I want to have with my wife, with TK, with Ryan, whoever it might be, right? I want to have this difficult conversation. Now, we're in the middle of a podcast right now. Probably be a terrible time for me to have this conversation. I'm going to call it my wife. In fact, when we were recording earlier with uh, Aubrey during the private podcast, I wrote something down that was revelatory for me. I mean, I'm not even ready to talk about it yet. Mm. And so if I'm not ready to talk about it, it's obviously not the most opportune time. But there will be a time that I need to talk about it. So I have some sort of deadline. I need to talk to this to my wife about this by the end of the month. And then what is the most opportune time within that time frame? That's what's important. There'll never be the perfect time, but I'll find the most ideal time to talk about this somewhere before that deadline. Mm. That's right. And where you have the conversation is also as important as when you have the conversation. Because in the same way you point out, there's no perfect time to have it but there are some horrible times to have it. Mm -hmm. There's no perfect place to have the conversation, but there are some horrible places to have it. You don't want to break this out at Starbucks. You want to be like, hey, I just want to spend some time together today and, you know, go over a few things. And then you get in the middle of Starbucks and it's crowded and it's a bunch of people around and you're putting the pressure on them to have a reaction that is both honest and also respectful towards you in this public space. And I'm not saying that you're thinking about having it in Starbucks, but where you have the conversation is also important. Um, The other thing I would say is I believe that it's helpful to give people the space to mentally prepare for a conversation of this nature, even if it creates a little tension leading into it. Mm -hmm. One way you can do that is you can write an email or a letter 
And you can say, I'm putting it in writing because I want you to have the space to react. But this is something that I want to discuss a little bit more. And you can give them some context. If you don't want to document it, put it in writing, that's totally cool. Another thing is to say, without having too much time to wait, like, I really need to talk about some things that are really pressing on my heart. It's like super important to me that we can be able to sit down and discuss. Yeah. Now that's going to make them nervous. That's going to, oh, is everything okay? Is everything mm-hmm. all right? But at least when you have this conversation, they know this is the thing that's been weighing on your mind. And they're like mentally ready to be very attentive and to listen and to and to discuss versus, you know, just like, hey, we need to spend some more time together. And then you're walking around at Disneyland or you're sitting out at a restaurant and boom, they're not mentally prepared for it. Those would just be a couple of bits of perspective I throw into the pot. Yeah. I mean, the question that I would ask this patron is, do you feel like you can just tell your partner this? Like, do you feel comfortable enough to just go to them and, and say this? And if not, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but that's the preface I would give. It's like, why don't you feel like you can go to your partner and talk to them about this? And so maybe start there before you send them an email. Hey, I want to talk about opening up our relationship, which there is a way to ease into it. There is a way that you could ease into this and open it right up to that conversation. However, there's a deeper problem right now in that relationship if she feels like she just, she, there's no way her partner would want to talk about this and would just put up a wall instantly. Yeah. And also, I think it's important to keep in mind here, from what you're both saying here, there's some best practices I use in my own life that I don't even realize I necessarily use them. It's just part of my difficult conversation practice. And I have to have a bunch of difficult conversations. Ryan and I have been having difficult conversations for 32 years now. Yeah. (laughs) And we had to have one recently, but I always sit down and write out. This is my process. I'm not prescribing it to anyone else. Bex and I had to have a really difficult conversation about a month ago. And I sat down and wrote pages and pages, not so I could communicate those pages to him, to Ryan or to to Bex or whomever. And I was like, hey, here's my uh, difficult conversation. Read it. Actually, it it was one page for me because he knows that's about all I can handle. (laughs) (laughs) It was a tweet. (laughs) <laughs> a subtweet. Right. Um, but no, what, I, what I'll do is I'll write it out so I better understand what I actually want to communicate. What am I struggling with? Where is the discontent? Where did it arise from? Where do we go from here? These are some important questions I have to ask myself. What does the ideal version of us look like going forward? if this current version is no longer serving us. Maybe it served us for a period of time, but it's no longer serving us. I want to be really clear on what the new version of us looks like so we can have that conversation. The only way I can do that is if I sit down and I write pages and pages and cross stuff out, and I really go through the exercise of understanding what my own perspective is. Because right now, it's just this emotional weight on my heart, and i am got all this mental clutter because of it. And then I can react in strange ways. I could be sad. I could be angry. I could be resentful as opposed to, okay, let's understand where those emotions emanate from. We're going to get back to the live stream. we got a bunch more mm. questions coming up here. But Malabama, what do you got for us first? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. A quick note on this insight. This is from Connor Habib. I just did his podcast. It was one of the best conversations I've had. And he had a beautiful insight. We'll even talk about this in depth on the private podcast. Here is Connor Habib. Hi, guys. This is Connor Habib. And I just want to say a few things about the open relationship monogamy thing. I think first, I just want to talk about intention and awareness. When we 
have an open relationship because we're afraid to commit or when we have a monogamous relationship because we're insecure about uh, losing our partner to someone else, then we're not making a decision about either relationship style. We're just sort of compulsively acting. I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just saying that seems to happen a lot. The awareness and the intention is something that I'd really like to pay attention to in figuring out what's good or what's bad. I want to just be clear here and say, I'm not saying that awareness excuses everything or automatically means that you're doing something good. People say they're aware of things all the time to dismiss bad or compulsive behaviors or behaviors that we don't even have to call them bad. We can just say that um, aren't really in that person's integrity. However, you can't really have intention and freedom without a sense of awareness. So awareness is a really high principle um, because it leads to freedom, which is one of the highest principles and therefore can lead to a real intentional kind of love. I think one of the main reasons to level a critique at monogamy more than open relationships is that especially for heterosexual couples, monogamy is the default. And monogamy is the default in most cultural conversations, in most forms of art, love songs, movies, novels, whatever. Um, so monogamy becomes the unthinking default. I think it might be sort of more instructive to think of monogamy as a certain type of perversion, the most widespread form of perversion. I don't mean that, by the way, in necessarily a negative way. I just think that if we view wedding rings, for instance, as this highly public S&M toy that people feel like they can wear into public without anyone commenting on it, you can kind of get a sense of what I mean. After all, you have this band around your finger that's saying, uh, my partner controls who I am allowed to look at or talk to, how I'm allowed to touch another person or even fantasize about another person, much less actually have sex with others. In fact, this ring here is symbolizing complete sexual restraint and control and a certain set of real boundaries. And it also signals to everybody else who I'm having sex with publicly. So I think that we can view monogamy that way. And the problem isn't that it's a perversion. That's fine. It's just that it's somehow recognized as being outside of the field of being highly sexualized, outside of the field of uh, being just another kind of kink. And when we start viewing it that way, we can sort of level the playing field. Because what we usually try to do is say, oh, well, um, an open relationship can be just as loving and fulfilling as monogamy. That is true. <laughs> but we should also flip the script there and say, you know, monogamy can also be um, perverse and it can also be a, a hyper arousal mechanism and all that kind of stuff because we really need to actually smooth out the playing field to allow people to say, I want to make an intentional choice about the kind of relationship I want to be in. I want to actually explore, discuss, think about, reflect, contemplate. I want to meditate even on these relationship choices with my partner and, you know, make a real decision. When I was talking to Connor last week, I was on his podcast and I was fascinated by the conversation because it went everywhere. I mean, it went from fiction writing to 
He was talking about different partners he was with to we talked about his storage locker in Los Angeles, even though he's living in Ireland now. Mm. He was Peter Rollins' roommate once upon a time. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Which was a strange connection. Peter Rollins has been on this podcast more than anyone else, except for TK, who we eventually just dragged. He doesn't even want to be here right now. (laughs) (laughs) We just sent him him, like threatening notes every week. You better be there. We know where you live. And so I I thought we could expand on this comment that he left because it's really thoughtful and it's, I think it approaches the monogamy and non-monogamy conversation, almost the obverse side of the coin from how Aubrey came to the table. Aubrey came to the table, no dogma. And I would say that Connor doesn't have any dogma around this either, but gives a fresh perspective that I found to be really insightful. When he talks about monogamy being the unthinking default, that is true. It is an unthinking default. With someone like Aubrey, it was a thinking default, intentional version of monogamy. You can have both. And Ryan, we were talking during the break and you were saying, I feel like going into this, I was going to be persuaded one way, but now I'm feeling a different way. Maybe you could expand on that. Oh yeah. Um, so I thought, because anytime the, the subject of like polyamory comes up, like I said during the podcast, like there's the high testosterone in me that's like, yeah, dude, that sounds like fun. And what I thought was going to happen was that I would have more of a leaning towards that side of it. But like really listening to Aubrey really kind of did the opposite. Hey, because it did exactly what Connor started out talking about with the intention. I was like, oh, like my intention with that is really this feeling of not being complete Mm. and somehow more relationships would make me more complete in some way. And I intellectually, I know that that's completely wrong. And that's why I haven't put much weight on the polyamory thing. But emotionally, like the the testosterone is real. And it really makes me want to like, you know, just look at every pretty girl that walks by. But I was kind of having this conversation with uh, Danny before we came back from the break. You know, we... um, we want to look outside ourselves for something that'll complete us. And then once we feel complete, and I do feel complete for who I am, but I'm not at that wholeness level with Mariah. Like mm-hmm. I can, gen- we might be at that soulness level, mm-hmm. but there's a wholeness level that, that I realize with hearing Aubrey speak is like, that is what I would much rather focus on than looking outside of the relationship. And I'm still open to like having that desire, you know? Sure. But listening, listening to him talk about that wholeness level, um, and that's what made me think about the third entity. It's like, there is a deeper, I didn't even realize it until he said it, but there's a deeper level that I can get to with Mariah that um, to me, that sounds like a wonderful path to go down. And maybe there's no end to that path, or maybe there is, but I'm not, I don't have an expectation one way or the other. I just want to clarify a few things for people because poly or polyamorous is a term that's often used, but there are more ways to have an open relationship than a, a polyamorous sure. relationship. There's My favorite term is Dan Savage's term, monogamish. Mm-hmm. That's the type of relationship I would say Bex and I are in. I will say, though, that when I hear someone like Aubrey 
And you see him and you're like, oh, he's this massive human being. He's super handsome, multi, multi-millionaire. Uh, you know, he, he was the founder of Onnit, the mm-hmm. supplement company, yeah. right? Yeah. And they yeah, make- I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's a super talented author, podcaster. Like, he has everything. How could he possibly get jealous, right? But that's just me projecting. I don't understand jealousy. I don't think I've ever felt jealousy in my life. It's just not a emotion that I'm capable of mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Now, I understand that other people do get jealous and other people get envious as well. And we use those two terms interchangeably, but they're they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't experience that. And so when my wife's on a dating app called Field, like I don't, I don't feel any jealousy around that at all. Mm-hmm. Unless she were to feel bad about it. Then the gel, I wouldn't feel jealousy around it, but I would feel bad. I'd feel a sense of compassion for that, right? Mm-hmm. I was, oh, if you're feeling like there's something off here. And so w- when I think about these different terms, and yes, they become they become a sort of definitional soup in a way, especially when you start going through all these terms. I pulled up the Wikipedia entry, Ryan, for non-monogamy, mm. and it gets real confusing real quick. Oh, yeah. Ethically non-monogamous, which to me seems redundant or at least unnecessary. Uh, polyamorous, but then also polygamous, right? Mm-hmm. Which would mean marrying multiple people. Mm-hmm. And there are a few different ways you can be polygamous as well, right? You can, you can think of like the fundamentalist version of the Latter-day Saints, which there are splinter sects still that yeah. do you know, multiple wives for one man. Yeah. But then there are some cultures where it's one woman, multiple husbands as well. Alabama was part of that, actually. What? That's news to me. But it goes on to talk about how there is no right way to engage in non-monogamy. And I think that is, we're often given a template. Monogamy is the right way. Non-monogamy is the wrong way. And I think what Aubrey did a great job of dispelling is, hey, there is a wrong way if it's wrong for you. And it certainly seemed to be wrong for him. And I love the conclusion that Ryan came to here. Ryan came to the conclusion where it was like, hey, I thought I'd be swayed one way, but actually I'm more steadfast in the sacred union I have with my wife. And how awesome is that? Because quite often when we're given evidence that can change our mind, we're either we push it off and say, hey, I don't even want to see anything that is different from my belief system. Or we know we want to change our mind, so any small bit of confirming evidence will instantly get us to, to change our mind to this thing we know we wanted to commit to anyway. Yeah, but by the way, related to that, there's a saying that when you give me an argument for my position, the question I'm asking myself is, do I get to believe? When you're giving me an argument for my opponent's position, the question I'm asking myself is, do I have to believe? Mm. And so we hold those opponents' arguments to a higher standard. Does that force me, compel me to accept what they say as true? Or is there any slight, tiny little way out? Whereas the other is, does it give me an excuse? Yeah. Yeah. What I really picked up on Connor's question as well towards the end there is, whether it's, you know, uh, non-monogamy or any versions of it and monogamy, um, when it starts to form ownership, like that's when it's going to get toxic. It doesn't matter what your 
sexual preferences. Yes. If you're starting to feel ownership over another, Mm -hmm. that's messed up. I agree. In fact, when he talked about the ring equaling control, Mm -hmm. I think that can be true, right? Sure. And sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yes. You know? It it doesn't have to necessarily (laughs) be true. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's, there's, there are other times where a wedding ring can be an attraction signal to certain people who want to have a married partner, right? Mm -hmm. And so understanding that, yes, the cigar is a cigar, right? Or the wedding ring is a wedding ring. Or it can mean that, hey, I'm trying to find a way to constrict you, to restrict you, to control you. Or it could be an amplification. It can be a signal that, hey, I'm committed to this person. I'm devoted to this person. And I want to show that not because they're controlling me or forcing me to wear it, but I want to show it myself. Mm. And this is one way. It's certainly not the only way. And that's where it becomes a problem. See, I've proven that I'm committed. I have this ring. And therefore, anything I do is forgiven because we signed the document, we did the ceremony, and I put this thing on. And therefore, I'm excused from all of my bad behavior. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, in the spirit of sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, is to make a distinction between a tradition and the philosophy behind it versus a deviation from that tradition. So the cigar was created for smoking. Mm -hmm. That's just the history of it, man. But there might be some people who take cigars and they think it's funny to like, you know, burn you with them. And and, and we can be honest about that and say, hey, that's a real phenomenon and that's really bad. Mm -hmm. But that's also a deviation from what the cigar is all about. And when it comes to things like the wedding ring, there's a really beautiful uh, tradition behind that symbology, right? The wedding ring never meant anything like I own you, I control you. But it is certainly true that for some people, that's how they choose to play the game and they give an unhealthy expression of that tradition, of that symbology. And so... This is why the definitions thing is so important, not because a matter of who has the right definition, but like understanding what people mean when they say they are an advocate of this lifestyle or that position. I think for marriage, when it comes to a lot of the symbols behind it, these are really rich, beautiful traditions. And over time, we've kind of deviated so far away from these things that these kinds of conversations are very good at challenging people who subscribe to these traditions to think back to the multidimensional nature of them, to think back to the possibilities that are inherent in them. You know, it's, it's similar to, you know, what you see in, in religion. Like, it's very easy if you're part of a religious community to get comfortable with the conviction that because you pass a theology exam, you're a good person and you're getting into heaven. And mm. even though you can be a jerk to everyone that you know, and you do everything in your life completely wrong, except show up to church on time. But here's some guy over there who's the best business partner to his colleagues, great dad to his children, great husband to his wife, treats everybody with respect, but that guy's a heretic. Why? Because it's easier to focus on that guy's heresy than on my own lack of wholeness, right? Mm. And so these kinds of conversations are a challenge for the person like myself who subscribes Mm. to the traditional position to say, hey, don't take the easy way out of just focusing on that, but also accept the challenge too of saying, Am I experiencing the fullness of that which I'm an advocate for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're yeah. both helping me realize something now. Is that I use that term monogamish because Bex and I are in what most people would consider a traditionally monogamous relationship most of the time, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. Yeah. But I also 
have qualms with controlling other people. Yeah. And so to me, that term monogamy has, as Connor ha- illustrated here, it illustrated control. But mm. what you're saying here, or you're both saying here, it doesn't necessarily have to mean yeah. that, right? And as we talked about with Aubrey, like traditional monogamy, by the way, we are primates and there are no monogamous primates. And actually, there was a question we had from Twitter. Alabama, you want to go back to the first page? I think this will be a great way to address what I was getting ready to I say. I also here. want to point out, though, that no primates have ever built a skyscraper or went to the moon. Well, that's where we're going here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was a question from Priyanka on Twitter. Is monogamy natural or is it a result of conditioning? It is a result of conditioning, for sure. There's no question about that, but th- that doesn't mean that it's wrong mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Sparkling water is not natural, but I want to drink sparkling <laughs> water every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Drinking coffee. We're the only primates that drink coffee, right? I want to continue to drink coffee, even though Paul Saladino doesn't want me to. <laughs> and so just because something is unnatural doesn't mean that it's bad. We use that term natural to denote good or bad, Mm. but a lot of things in nature that are natural, but they're really bad, right? Like I could get eaten by a lion Mm -hmm. and it's natural. So I guess it's fine. No, I prefer not to be eaten by a lion. I want to be in here with my sparkling water and my coffee. And Ryan wants to be on a rocket to the moon. Exactly. (laughs) If you believe in the moon landing. (laughs) By the way, you see the fallacy of appealing to the natural on both sides of debates about controversial issues. Some people will go to great lengths to show that a certain thing is natural, assuming that by doing that, they've established it as good and healthy. And some people will go to great lengths showing that it's not natural and assuming that by doing that, they've shown it to be bad. But what we often mean by natural is just that it is in accordance with our impulses and our instincts to do that sort of thing. But there are clearly some instances in which our impulses and instincts incline us in a certain direction, and it's healthier to check those impulses and instincts. So like one of the hallmarks of civilization is dealing with conflict nonviolently. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it is in accordance with human instinct and impulse to resolve conflicts by resorting to violence pretty quickly. You know, somebody makes you angry. It takes a lot of self-control. It takes a, an abstract moral code to say, I am not going to solve this problem by punching this person or by threatening them with violence. I'm going to treat that as a last result, and I'm going to try something called communication, mutual cooperation to resolve that. That's a form of a more evolved consciousness, right? Um, Or a cuck. (laughs) 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 How funny that word is just thrown around like so much these days. Oh, shit. By by the way, that that is how people debate nowadays. (laughs) Right, yeah, right. any Any of these traditions... I mean, you don't know why you're following these traditions. Like I got married at 18 because I thought it was the right thing to do. And my ex-wife and I, we were not very compatible. But you know what I thought? Because of uh, making this union with God, there was going to be some kind of, you know, uh, miraculous intervention Mm. that was going to like help me see the light on why marriage was the right thing to do. And I had to learn the lesson the hard way that compatibility is a real thing. Mm. And it's funny because I had like my dad try to talk me out of it for a second. And really? Yeah. That's yeah. shocking to me. I never knew that. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he, for a brief minute was like, son, you sure you want to do this? Like you're 18 years old. I'm like, well, I want to have sex. Like, I don't know what else to do, man. Like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be, uh, you know, a sinner in the eyes of God. So, you know, if you don't know 
my why was because I thought I was going to get miraculous divine intervention. That was my why. What a crappy why. Mm. So the question is, is when, when you're using any of these tools, it's like, why do you want to use this tool? So if there's someone in a monogamous relationship and they're like, oh man, I really wish I could open this up. Why? Why do you want to open it up? And with a quite, with a, a such a strong um, switching and pass, whatever you want to call it, you might even need to get to the why behind the why. Why do you want that? Why do you want that why? Mm-hmm. And maybe even a third layer deeper, like what is it? Because I know for me, it's, comp- and whenever I think about the non-monogamy or polyamorous, which I use very, very um, intentionally, like when I think about polyamory, there is a very surface level that thinks it's a good idea. But when I really dig in deep, it's like, it's not the right, it's not the right reason for me. Yeah, and that's that's the key. You you get to the why behind the why there, right? And understanding that there might be an impulse, which, by the way, that impulse is natural, right? Yeah, sure. But also, I think it's important to understand that just because you are in a sacred monogamous commitment to someone else, it doesn't mean it's going to instantly turn off your attraction. I love the Dr. Christopher Ryan. He on his Substack he wrote this um, essay about how human beings are not naturally vegetarian. You can choose to be a vegetarian for health reasons or environmental reasons, although you're not naturally vegetarian. Just like as a human being, you're not naturally monogamous. However, you can make the conscious decision to choose monogamy. There is no right or wrong here. And that's really what I was hoping to get out of this conversation. I think we really got it with Aubrey and all of these other points of view from the questioners and also from Connor's Uh, voice message that he sent in, what I realized is, oh, yes, we don't have to cling to any sort of dogma here. There is not a right answer. And what is right for me may not be right for me a year from now, two years from now. And even if someone says, hey, I'm really into open relationships, getting clear on what that means, because I could say I'm into open relationships. And then the other person's like, yeah, great. I'm into relationship anarchy or I'm into open marriage. Oh, wait, I didn't say open marriage. I actually want uh, swinging. And, and OK, that's a different set of terms. Right. And so you have to really understand like, okay, an open relationship is one thing. Friends with benefits is a type of open relationship, which is appreciably different from open marriage, which is appreciably different from a thruple or a quad. These are all different ways that we can structure our lives. And it's not that you're wrong for wanting to structure your life that way, but understanding the why behind it. And then how do you want to structure it that is optimal for you and being willing to change that if it's no longer optimal? That seems like it's the key. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one other little point too, though, about the nature of dogma um, as someone who subscribes to dogmas <laughs> is that there, there's a sort of spectrum of belief. And I want to make sure that that there's something in the middle between being dogmatic and believing that there is no hierarchy of value at all. In between that, there is belief in a hierarchy of value held non-dogmatically, mm, right? So yes. th- there are some who talk about, talk about dogma in such a way that they seem to imply that having an opinion about anything makes you dogmatic. Ah. But one, it's possible for a person to think they're right about something and to be humble and respectful and open-minded about it, right? Like it is my opinion that 
If you eat McDonald's every day and there are certain things on that menu that you eat every day, you are doing something that is objectively harmful to your body. It's my opinion. I'm open to counter arguments. I'm open to having a discussion about it. But you know what? If you're that guy, I'm going to love you the same way I love the brother who eats healthy. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't have to pretend like I think your way of eating is equal to his way of eating in order to be kind to you, respectful to you and be friends with you. But if you ask me what I think, I'm going to give you my honest take on the Mm. McDonald's diet. But once I make it known, I don't need to be in your face every single day like you didn't hear me the first time either. Like, hey, brother, you're going to eat those French fries? I don't need to do you like that. You know, you don't have an information problem. You've made your choice. Right. Right. And so I, I think there is a spectrum. There's being dogmatic which is, I think, what we all are adamantly against, you know, being closed-minded with your beliefs. There's being relativistic. Hey, man, I don't really believe in a hierarchy of value, and that's a real position. But then there's also the sense of, like, I believe in a hierarchy of values. I don't mm-hmm. believe that all ideas are equal. And at the same time, I can be respectful, gentle, considerate, and kind towards people who share different beliefs than mine while also having dogmas that I subscribe to, meaning I think these propositions are true. Yeah, but let me ask you, let me just get some clarity around this. Do you think that hierarchy of values is still relativistic, though? I think maybe that's where you and I differ, because I agree Mm. there's a hierarchy of values. I just think it is relativistic. And I can can see someone can show up with no hierarchy of values. That's pure chaos to me. Mm. I have a hierarchy of values where I, what I don't do is I don't prescribe that to anyone else, or at least I try not to. If I do, I, I, I sort of look in the mirror and wince. Well, the, yeah. I think the, the pithy thing to say here of what TK is trying to say is like, just because someone doesn't agree with something that you feel so strongly about, it doesn't make you wrong. Right. And if you can hold that context in these conversations, then you can actually have conversations without feeling like you have to prove your point. Because when someone says, I don't agree with that, and here's why, we, we, our natural defense is to defend it. Yes. Well, you're not seeing it from my perspective. Right. And I'm like, and there's a lot of times where I'll have this conversation with someone and they'll kind of get there. And I'm like, no, I see your perspective. I just, that's just not how I see it, you know? Right. Right. And you don't have to be defensive or dogmatic in order to acknowledge facticity as a thing, right? There are, there are factual propositions that can be uttered about water and I can be non-defensive about it. I can be generous about it. I can be the coolest dude in the room if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know what I know. But I also am not obligated in order to be a decent human being to pretend like knowledge that I have about this water, you know, isn't valid. As far as your question about like hierarchy of value, is it relative? I, I think I think the nature of value itself is is teleological, meaning that it is relative to some kind of higher purpose. So when I say the the eating the quarter pounder with cheese and the French fries every day is unhealthy, I believe that's an objectively true statement. But it's a teleological statement, meaning relative to the optimal function of the human body, it is unhealthy, right? But look, outside of that game, right? Like if you tell me, well, you know what? I don't care about the optimal function of my body. I enjoy feeling sick. I enjoy the possibility of dying from a heart attack because of this. It's like, okay, like I got nothing to say to that, right? Like I don't have to preach to you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to like try to force you to it. And and in fact, I probably wouldn't even initiate a conversation on McDonald's if I see you eating it because that's just not my starting point for engaging humanity. The starting point for engaging humanity is like, whoa, hello there, fellow divine being. It's nice to have an opportunity to connect. 
before I even care about the rightness or wrongness of any of your beliefs, tell me what's on your heart, potential friend. That's the starting point for connecting with another human being. Mm. But if you bring up McDonald's, like it's okay if you're asking me questions about it to have opinions about what that food is composed of and how that food might impact your body. And I can do that without being preachy or unforgiving or forceful. Sounds like there are no embedded shoulds in that. And to me, that's when I'm talking about dogma. There's almost always an embedded should, Ryan. When you grew up in a fundamentalist religion, Mm -hmm. you and Professor Sean, as a matter of fact, there are so many shoulds attached to that. And at first it gives you that sense of, rightness and righteousness and like I'm headed down the right path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is when it begins to disintegrate because when you realize one of these shoulds is actually harmful to me or to someone I love and it becomes this thing that was the source of good feeling and righteousness. Yeah. If I have to keep clinging to it, I start dragging people toward misery. That's right. A a lot of that defensiveness comes from or that need to to be preachy. It comes from unresolved issues in our own selves, right? Mm, You know, like, you know, since dogma is just such a religious term, I I, I use another religious analogy with this, but like I've seen some conversations and and maybe y'all have seen some like this before too. I know some of our followers have where maybe maybe the the religious person is advocating that belief and, and somebody's not believing or somebody's just like, nah, they're making fun of that belief and that religious person gets angry and they're like, well, you're going to burn in hell. Mm. And my thought about something like that is, if you really believe that, you should be in tears. Yes. You should be weeping in tears at the thought that your brother, that your sister is going to hell. You should not be pushing that on somebody with delight or with Mm -hmm. anger. But the fact that that is what's happening is an expression of the fact that there's more than just a sort of honest expression of what is believed, there is, there is unresolved angst. There is the, I need you to believe with me in order to be secure in my belief. Yes. And, and, and if you don't co-sign it, well, now I feel tension and I'm holding you responsible for that, for that tension. And now I'm going to lash out at you with the threat, with a threat of punishment or a threat of unhappiness. But man, like we should never delight in any negative consequences that we think another person is going to experience for not believing something that we think to be yeah. the truth. Whether it's about McDonald's, marriage, or anything else, we should never be, well, okay, you want to keep eating at McDonald's? Well, fine, you're going to have a heart attack. If you really believe that, man, like, why are you so happy about this guy having a heart attack? Just because <laughs> so he disagrees true. with your position about McDonald's. Yeah. You should be sad about that. Oh, dude, so you know, we, we, dude, we have this fetish for purity. And like everything we're talking about here, it's like when you take something to a, 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 a puritist level, um, you have to defend it because that person clings to purity so much. No, 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 I'm pure. And here's how I can make you pure too. And I'll tell you, like the, one of the best things I've done for myself is I, do n- I hold on to purity very loosely. I desire it, yeah. but I don't need it. I, mm. It's still there. I, I want things to be as perfect as they can be. I forget the guest we had on, but she talked about, um, I know it was a psycho therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a down to about 40 of them. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there you go. Just pick one of the 40. No, she said, you know, perfection is about being complete and it's not about being uh, necessarily the right way. And like that really helped me. Like that helped me just grip a little bit less to the idea of purity. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when, when someone is focused on purity and like they have a fetish for that, um, obviously I'm not talking about a sexual fetish. 
would I guess maybe someone could. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, purity but, is definitely, uh, I mean, the the whole Madonna whore complex. It, and, and so what you're saying about purity, I think resonates on a cultural level as well, because we shame impurities, right? Right. In fact, what's the term we use? Oh, that's dirty. Mm-hmm. But then like we can fetishize it. Oh that's yeah, dirty. that's dirty. But think about that. Dirt. We've made dirt an immoral thing. Yeah. The thing from which food grows <laughs> is now immoral. It's dirty. It's gross. And we not just we not we don't just prop up purity, but almost like a sterile environment in a way. It has to be so pure it is sterile. Dude, you're talking about like the old future from the 80s. Like all the futuristic towns, like they all look so sterile. Yeah. And they all look so pure and perfect. Yes. But it's almost like you know, the future that I want is like where we get more back to like actually using the earth for what it's meant to use, you know, used for and not using up all its resources and consuming because of every single person in the world consumed like us Americans. We need five earths, almost five earths to sustain our unchecked consumption. So yeah, man, um, it is the, the purity has been around a long time with mm. human beings and it isn't going any anywhere anytime soon. And, and, and that's why wholeness is such a powerful concept, right? Versus being uh, free of any flaws or free of any personality or being neutral and sterile. It's about being whole. It's a, it's a positive thing, right? Like wholeness isn't defined by like, oh, the absence of this, the absence of that. It's it's the presence of this. It's mm. the presence of that, right? And so the, the the dirt or the soil is a great example. On my On my clean white shirt, at, you know, at, at a business meeting, no, I don't want dirt on there. Like that's dirty. That's a, that's a bad thing. But on the ground in my garden, producing these beautiful flowers, that's a good thing. So it's not about the soil being bad. It's about the purpose for which it's used. It's about the context. And it gets back to what you were saying about the why. Yeah. yeah. Amen. You know that we do these simple living segments, talkaboutables, we do a masseter trash it, impulse purchases, obsolete objects, sucky ads. But what you've probably noticed from today's episode of something a little bit different. We've been less constrained. It's like I took off the metaphorical wedding ring of the minimalists. How's your OCD handle in that? Uh, it's going okay. All right, good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. And because I really enjoy these conversations and especially with our guests and being able to to be less constrained with our question answering. So we'll check back in with the live stream here in a moment. I'm working toward making the show even more. It's always been a listener driven show more than any other show that I listen to or watch. And yet today what we wanted to do was scale back on the segments a bit. And I think you'll see this going forward mainly so we have more time for you, the question askers. You can still send us your amass it or trash it, your impulse purchases, your obsolete objects, your sucky ads, even your home tours. We've got a home tour coming up from one of our lovely lovely, uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, Very eclectic home. I can't wait to talk to you all about this. But if you're sending them in to podcasts at theminimalists.com, try to do it in the form of a question. You like amass it or trash it. Hey, here's something I'm holding on to. It could be a thing. It could be a box. You don't even know what's in it. It could be a relationship you're holding on to. It could be an ideology that you're holding on to. Should I amass it or trash it? And that way we can feature it on the show. And we're also stepping back a little bit. You've noticed these conversations being a bit more meandering, maybe more expansive in places. And 
we're just going with it. We're over on time already, but we're going to keep going today just for our Patreon subscribers here. So let's check in with the Patreon live stream before we get into TK's tweet of the week. Great. We have a question and a comment from Larissa. Her comment says, there's never a perfect time to bring up difficult topics. I once jokingly suggested with my partner that we should schedule a reoccurring good time to air grievances, which turned into a weekly way to talk and connect instead. I thought that was lovely. Her mm. question is, with the rising costs of living, like groceries, housing, childcare, et cetera, do you think that the polyamorous relationship style will become more mainstream or popular? Because of inflation? It could be. I <laughs> mean, maybe that, that's fascinating. I mean, yeah. I think be, having a roommate is more popular than ever yeah. out of necessity. Yeah. Now, whether or not you're sleeping with those roommates, that's a, a completely different thing, right? Mm -hmm. Professor Sean. I just want to make sure um, when we talk about this question that we bring it back to, or at least consider, we mentioned relationship anarchy before, and anarchism is often about this, this pulling of resources, and that's mm. what relationship anarchy mm. can mean for a lot of people as well. So I think this is a really uh, valid question. Yeah. I didn't even think of it that way. It is a very thoughtful question. Yeah, it's, it's uh, relevant for sure. Well, TK is our resident anarchist here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, not, not resident advocate of chaos, right? <laughs> Anarchy is about voluntary order, okay? Mm. Voluntary organization. <laughs> Got daddy on leash laugh. Whatever, whatever, Joseph Stalin. We <laughs> 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 should probably talk about our topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, do you so, have an answer to this? Do, do we think we'll see an increase in polyamory because of inflation and where things are going financially? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think as a direct result. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, when I was doing research for this episode, which was way too much, the stats are off the charts. I mean, most people around the world are not in a monogamous relationship. And when you really narrow the definition of monogamy for how it was initially intended, when you like, you get with one person, once you become pubescent, essentially, mm -hmm. and then you are pair bonded for the rest of your life, I mean, that is single digit percentages. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very small percentage of people. And so many people who are monogamous are serially monogamous, which is totally fine, right? There are other people who are monogamish, which is sort of a type of monogamy, but also a type of open relationship, sort of a, a blend. There's genetic monogamy, which like ensures that your offspring is actually your offspring now that we have testing for that. Mm -hmm. Because for many, many years, many decades, many centuries, millennia, we didn't know who the dad was. I mean, a lot of cultures even today don't really know who the dad is. I mean, mm. there are even some superstitions like if the woman wants the best child, you go sleep with the smartest man, the most attractive man, et cetera. So you can like sort of mix and you get all, not understanding that that's not how a baby is made. Mm. But essentially when the tribe or the culture, the group, the community takes care of a child, that's another way of doing it. And in fact, that is much more natural. One thing that we've done with the 
nuclear family, which really became prevalent in the 1950s, is we did cut ourselves off from community in a bunch of different ways. And it's become much more difficult to raise children. And so, yes, while inflation probably plays some role here, I think there's a bigger role for community, however you want to look at it. It doesn't mean you have to date everyone in your community or mm-hmm. have sex with everyone in your community. There probably is a role for community in child rearing. Because right now, we don't have that. And it's up to a mom and a dad, and then we shuffle them off to a teacher for eight hours a day, and then they have to come back to us. And and that's really it. Whereas there's no real community raising the children or raising the family. That's a good point. I think inflation is a piece of this. But yeah, I mean, the fact that we have gotten so far from community, like that's definitely um, hindered us in a way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think there is probably a time coming where you're going to really have to rely on your community, not for the entire world, but for people out there, I'm sure. I mean, look at, you know, what's happening in different parts of the world, just name natural disaster or natural or uh, uh, a terrible occurrence, whatever's going on. Mm -hmm. Like those people who have community, they're going to thrive more than people who kind of have isolated themselves. He's saying the end of the world is nigh. That is not what I'm saying. (laughs) I really, I really, I really, like, as I said it, I'm like, that's how it sounded. And I was trying to, Backpedal a little bit because that's not what that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> Any y'all ever seen that movie Her? Yeah, oh. um, with, with the guy the guy has the the essential like the AI girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder too, like when when we're thinking futuristically and 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 predicting the future of relationships. So there are a lot of things happening technologically technologically that are incentivizing people away from some of the traditional reasons for being involved in a traditional marriage, like. People are being extricated by technology from some of the more obvious forms of dependencies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like women don't need to be married now to have babies, right? Like once upon a time, that was more pragmatically necessary. That's a big deal, right? Men don't need to be married now in order to achieve orgasmic pleasure. That's always been true at a certain level. But technology has taken this in the direction of like bot girlfriends and Things like that, right? Like, like we're getting there, man. Bot girlfriend, it's a great introduction to non-monogamous relationship. <laughs> well, well it, it just makes you wonder. Like, I, I don't know if I see an increase in polyamory because I believe you describe you describe polyamory as like having like the a marital or family structure. And I think marriage is still a predominantly traditional concept. Most people's concept of marriage is very traditional, and that dominates. But like non-monogamish. I, I I think that could be something that just gets bigger and bigger uh, because it, it seems like in terms of like the optionality that people have to have children, to not have children, to be, you know, uh, bolted down in the same place versus, versus having flexibility, people wanting to work. Yeah. It, it, it seems like that's a, a very realistic possibility. I, but I, I well, don't know the data on it. This isn't something I've researched, you know. Well, I mean, what I, what I do see happening is that we are given permission to have our feelings and our desires be the way that they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still trying to be controlled, but like the day and age that we live in, and I like that. I like that you're not meant to feel bad for something that you desire. And basically with where we're at, people who have the desires that traditionally would be looked at as bad or evil or whatever, they're given permission to be like, no, that's that's just you. You and don't have to feel shame. Oh, yeah, it's okay to be you, you, you. Yeah, and you don't have to feel shame around it. I want to comment on her comment because Mariah and I do the same exact thing. Sorry, left turn here. So we have a monthly relationship dinner. 
like on the first of every month. And if we can't do it on the first for whatever reason, we'll, we'll reschedule for as close to the first as we can. And I'm telling you, like the questions that we go through is freaking amazing. Cause it's like, first off, it puts everything on the partner. So like it, there's never any, there's very few questions that we ask each other where it's like, Hey, what do you think I could have done better this month? But most of the questions are like, what do you feel like you could have done better this month? Mm. What do you wish you would have done? It puts, it puts it more on the individual than it does like give me an opportunity to, to be like, oh yeah, I got to talk about everything that really pissed me off this month that you did. And it's not accusatory either. It's exactly. not like, yeah. hey, uh, sweetheart, do you think you could have done the dishes more this month? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> do you think you could have yeah. made the bed this morning? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what I love about that is it is allowing each person in the relationship to take ownership mm-hmm. and to better understand. We use this term love languages a lot. You know, I don't believe in love languages and because I don't think that is a, an understanding of love because it's almost transactional in a way, right? Here's my, here, I gave you a gift as a love language. Yeah. I was talking to Bex about this this weekend on her podcast and I always I joke that making the bed is my love language. Like when she makes the bed, uh, I feel like seen, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and yet, as soon as if I were to need that, yeah, now it's a prison. Mm. No longer do I feel seen. I feel unseen if you don't do it. And what you're opening up with a monthly conversation, whatever it is, it's almost like a pressure release valve for the relationship. Because otherwise, what happens? We store up our anger, our discontent, our rage mm-hmm. for the most inopportune times. And now all of a sudden you and Mariah are going on a vacation to Tahoe and we're going to use this time to catch up on all of our arguing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it becomes a nightmare because you don't have that pressure release valve throughout mm-hmm. these regular intervals. Yeah. And another good approach I like about what you guys do is um, it's easy to assume that if I don't do something about it, it won't get done. If I don't say something about it, it won't get acknowledged. And when you give your partner the opportunity to talk about what they think they need to work on mm. and they say that thing that was irritating to you that the two of you never discussed, it gives you the opportunity to say, oh, whoa, they're being way harder on themselves than I'm even being. Mm-hmm. And not only do they not need me to point out to them an area where I think they need to improve, but they might actually need some encouragement from me about the efforts that they've already been making. And it might give me some security to know that they're working very hard to improve this area on their own without any feedback from me. And by adopting a supportive, encouraging role, I can get what I need without using correction. Whereas if I just dive in presumptuously, you know, you need to do better at that. Then I might even wound them further or push them away even more and make things more complicated for them and me. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I got to correct myself. It's a life dinner that we have. And I think the word relation life is actually a little bit more powerful yeah. there than relationship. Mm. But yeah, you're absolutely right, man. I mean, it gives, yeah, because let's say I'm doing something that Mariah sees. I mean, she's not like this at all, but let's say she was, I've had girlfriends who were, they see something that I'm doing. Like, I hate when you do that. You're always doing that. Like, but you're right. When I open up and say, Oh man, I do this one thing I really want to fix. And if it's on her mind, then yeah, it releases the pressure of her feeling like she has to constantly remind me like, hey, you yeah. do this one thing. Yeah. And it, like you said, it holds 
holds you just holds myself accountable and it gives uh, both of us an opportunity to do that. I also see it removing the blame from the relationship mm-hmm. because it's not, hey, we're going to sit down. Now I'm going to blame you for all the things you've done over the last 30 days. You want to talk about a recipe for ruining a relationship is to blame the other person for your own upset, right? for your own discontent. You make me this way. Why do you make Sweat. Yes. <laughs> Why just can't like, you change? Sorry, I just had like flashbacks. Anyway. <laughs> hey, so, so something that uh, my wife and I do is we, we don't we don't plan out what we're going to discuss, but we take walks like frequently. If if a day goes by where we didn't take a walk that day, we both really feel it. And we mm-hmm. both express something like, man, it's kind of sad. We didn't get that walk in today. Let's make sure we do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 our most enjoyable time together. Um, at least one of our most enjoyable times together, taking that walk. And and I, I've heard someone describe walking as kind of like a mantra for the body. Mm-hmm. There's something about the spirit and the ambiance and the movement of a walk that creates a kind of conversational space for different types of topics to emerge mm. that aren't quite of the same energy if you're sitting around at home, especially when you got all the distractions around you, or if you're at a coffee shop or in an office or on the phone. I've noticed that organically, without even planning it, the types of things we talk about on a walk, it's just very different. Mm. And what often happens is, you know, maybe for that first 15, 20, 30 minutes of the walk, it's kind of just like banter or like talking about different highlights from the day. But then there's just this point where like magic, there's something that needs to be discussed and it just emerges naturally. Mm. And and there's something about the walk that works really well for us without even saying, we're going to take a walk and we're going to talk about this thing. Let's just take a walk together. Yeah. Alabama, you and your husband's over there. What time is it? (laughs) It's time. You say you you say that like I have like seven the more you say it the funnier it gets. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a joke because there's like eight, eight dudes in here. Right, right, right. Jess is in here and like yeah, anyway anyway. Alabama, what time is it? It's time for TK's tweet of the week. If you, her voice is a little bit hoarse, she was Alabama was just in Alabama. It's mm-hmm. pollen season. I'm sorry, y'all. Oh man, she brought it back in her sinuses. <laughs> It's, we it's, have it's like a, Whitney Houston, the comeback version. Yeah. <laughs> Still got it. <laughs> Just a little horse. <laughs> I'm calling this one Loving and Cheating. It is a tweet from Dr. Nicole LaPera. TK, you want to read it for us? Yeah. I thought I, it's I thought in your stack it. somewhere. <laughs> I got it right here. From Dr. Nicole LaPera. Reading from Tacoa La Prince. That's what TK stands for if y'all want to know. <laughs> Many people do love their partners and cheat. The idea that if you love someone, you won't be attracted to others and your own internal insecurities will no longer exist isn't true. Cheating and relationship sabotage points to deeper issues with the person. You know what's fascinating about this tweet? I completely agree with it. Quite often what happens when a relationship needs to end, we're afraid. Mm. And so what we do is we self-sabotage or we sabotage the relationship. I'm going to do something that forces some sort of break. Yeah. Mm. Either I'm going to cheat on them, they are going to cheat on me, we'll have some big argument, as opposed to coming to the table and saying, hey, we happen to be <coughs> incompatible. Mm-hmm. I thought we'd be compatible because we had this great chemistry. I still love you, but... This incompatibility means that we probably need to be at a loving bifurcation point. You need to go that way or whatever way you're going, whichever way you want to go. 
here's where I need to go and I know it's not the same place. But instead, what do we do? We cling. We cling. And that clinging also manifests in cheating because it's, it's saying, hey, I'm not willing to let this go. And yet I'm not willing to keep it how it is right now. So I need to blow the whole damn thing up. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes it's a manifestation of unhealthy attitudes we've been conditioned to adopt towards contradictory desires, right? Like, and marriage is one of those places where we do something to ourselves that we don't quite do in other places. So for instance, do you think that merely because you find a job you're passionate about, that you're going to want to go to every single meeting meeting and do every single task associated with that job? Do you really think you're never going to have a day where you say, I don't feel like doing this? Mm. You've never done what you love. But TK, if you find something that you love to do- You'll never work a day in your life, right? (laughs) Oh my God. That's what they say. Yeah. Talk to people who actually do what they love. Mm -hmm. And they've had some moments where they've been like, "Ah, it's going to take a little discipline to get through this particular task. Do you think that- because you have someone that's a really great friend, that they'll never disappoint you, that you'll never be irritated with them? Do you think that if you have children that you're crazy about, you're never going to roll your eyes and go, oh my gosh, this kid is killing me, right? Do, do you think that there's anything you could possibly have in mm. life, no matter how good it is? Do you think you can have a great diet that's making you healthier than you've ever been and not experience the temptation to eat something that's inconsistent with yeah. that diet? We experience contradictory impulses and desires, but yet when it comes to romantic attraction, when when it comes to love, it's very scandalous to consider that we might feel an attraction towards someone that's not our partner. And when we treat that like it's scandalous, when we demonize the attraction, it leads to suppression. We don't talk to anybody about it. Mm. And then you start to feel creepy. You start to feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. And anything that is within you that you do not bring forth in a healthy manner will come forward eventually, but as a monster, Mm. as a monster that destroys you. And so sometimes cheating isn't a manifestation of the fact that that relationship needed to end. Sometimes cheating is a manifestation of the fact that there was something perfectly healthy and legitimate going on inside of you. And rather than letting that out in a healthy way, discussing it and dealing with it, you suppressed it. You made it a secret and then it destroyed you by manifesting itself in an unhealthy way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes, it comes down to honesty and like communication and back to the, that first patron question, like, how do I tell my partner I want an open relationship? It's like, do you feel like you can be honest with your partner? Yeah. Because if you don't feel like you can be upfront with them, like that's something to work on. That's something to look at. It doesn't mean you're not compatible. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be together. But that's definitely something that is going to really strengthen a relationship is that honesty. Like, I, of course, I'll get other women. Of course, Mariah looks at other guys, you know? I mean, but like, we're not acting on it. And we have, you know, different agreements with us. And um, I love what Aubrey was saying about the ace. You know, you just like, sometimes you fold and that's okay. Um, I know what I'm folding for, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you feel like you can't be upfront with someone because of this falsehood that you've constructed. You've created a version of yourself that you can't possibly live up to. Mm -hmm. And it often starts on a first date. Like when you go meet someone on a first date, you're getting most likely the best version of them. And if you think, oh, you know what? That was a 
really good first date. I, if I just change these 14 things about that person, yeah. we could be in a beautiful relationship. <laughs> no, no, no. Some things are going to change, but they're not going to change in the way you want them to change. Right, Bring that list right. to the second date. That's, right. <laughs> that's what Josh does. He writes it out. Oh, that was a great first date. <laughs> Ryan, here are the 14 things I want you to change oh, in order shit. to be my best friend. Yeah. Is that how you got the first minimalist article? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just exactly. substituted stuff for Ryan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I think it's important that we construct a version of, our, of ourselves that we can never live up to. And no wonder we're creating these expectations in someone else. So maybe I feel like I can't talk to you about this because I've created this idealistic version of me that isn't actually me. It's the John mm. Mayer line. Do you love me or the thought of me? Mm. Or maybe if you were to append that, do you love me or the version of me that I've displayed only? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Because I'm much deeper than the surface, what I've displayed to you up front. And that's the beautiful thing about having a long-term relationship with someone, whether it's monogamous, non-monogamous, whatever, you get to know that person and the dimensions of them. And that flawlessness breaks down pretty quickly the more that you see someone. And the more disappointed you'll become if you continue to put them on a pedestal and prop them up, pedestalizing yeah. someone or pedestalizing yourself and look down, looking down on them, that actually ruins a relationship either way. Because if you mm -hmm. pedestalize someone, what happens? You force them to look down on you. Mm. And if you're forcing mm. them to look down on you, how's that going to work for your relationship? Yeah. And often when we do that, I think, it's because we're we're at some level doing that to ourselves. Like if you and I are playing a game of basketball and 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 you call, I, I dribble out of bounds and you say out of bounds, I'm going to let you hold me accountable to that precisely because I intend to hold you accountable to the same thing. So thank right? God we're not playing with James Harden. If you <laughs> yeah. play a pickup game with James Harden, he's going to call everything. Notice he didn't say traveling. <laughs> right, that was real controversial. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I derailed it. No more basketball talk. This that's why one basketball reference the whole episode. <laughs> but but sometimes we we put we put expectations on ourselves too. Expectations like, oh, I I'm not the type of person to ever mm -hmm. argue with my spouse. I always deal with conflict in a way that is noble and amicable and successful. And then it's like if I feel like arguing, if I feel like acting stupid. You know, it's like, oh, I can't let anybody see that. I, I, I can't act on that. I got to suppress that. I got to play a role. I got to play the role of good guy. I got to play the role of Mr. Diplomat, Mr. Who gets it right all the time. Mm. And then that leads to some serious problems, right? And, and so I, I remember one time um, I was talking to an older person I respected and I was in college and me and this girl I was dating, we got into an argument and I was seeking out some advice from this person. And they said to me, you all argue about stuff, man? Me and my spouse, we never argue about anything. If you find somebody that you're truly compatible with, you'll never argue like that. <laughs> and, and so I, I got it in my head that one sign for finding the right person mm. is that you don't have stupid arguments. Mm. That's crazy. And, and I, for many years, I did that to myself. I either suppressed my desire to mm. have an argument or when we had an argument, I took that as a sign that maybe we shouldn't be together. And mm. man, you want to talk about minimalism as it pertains to the non-stuff. This is a great example of somebody who carried around a whole lot of baggage. And I finally got to a point where I could have an argument with my lover and still be good and healthy because I didn't have a narrative that said, I'm bad, she's bad, and we're bad for having that misunderstanding and being these imperfect, flawed human beings as we try to work it out. 
you know? And, and this yeah. is where definitions are helpful, right? Because when you say argument, one person might think, knockout, drag out, fight, <laughs> right, screaming. Right. <laughs> and maybe maybe it's safe to say, like, yes, if you find someone you're right. compatible with, you're not going to have a screaming match with them ever. That's right. Mm. That's possible. I'm yeah. not saying that it's impossible to have a screaming match with someone you're compatible with as well. But, but what I'm saying is that you might define arguing yeah. as one thing. Someone else might say, well, any disagreement is an argument. If right. you have a slightly different opinion, that is an argument. Yeah. Hmm. And... If that's your expectation for a relationship, that's not even yeah. a relationship. Mm-hmm. That is, that's her, the movie. It's, it's having artificial intelligence that always agrees with you and also happens to have sex with you as well. <laughs> oh man, you know, dude, you said this, Josh, every relationship you have is going to bring you misery at some point. And what TK was saying at the beginning of this, it made me realize like, it's not just relationship with people. I mean, it's relationship with uh, our dogma, relationship with our things, like no matter what relationship you have in your life, a relationship really, it's just a, oh, it's like a fancy word for clinging in a way. Yeah, anything you cling to. And it's okay to cling. Well, well, I don't, I, I, it's not okay for me. I well, don't, I, I'm saying I'm not moralizing clinging is what I'm trying to say. I don't moralize it either, but if you want to get, yeah, it's great. If you want to get dragged, cling. Yeah, absolutely. But it's okay to be attached to something with a willingness to let go. And I think Aubrey mm-hmm. expressed this beautifully for sure earlier when he's like, he was talking about how you can be in relationship with someone, but not cling to that relationship. Mm-hmm. You can be in a relationship with stuff. You can have, be, have a room full of stuff and not be attached to any of it, being willing to walk away from any of it. The mm-hmm. opposite is also true. We often see this, someone will, get rid of all of their things, but they didn't get rid of their things up here. Mm -hmm. They let go of the material clutter, but they held on to that spiritual, emotional, psychological, mental clutter in Mm -hmm. their lives. In fact, they're more miserable now because all of the pacifiers in their life are gone. They got rid of the things, but they never got rid of the attachment and the clinging to those things. And it was that clinging, not the stuff that was making them miserable. Yeah. You TikTok that, Danny. <laughs> TikTok that. Give me the da 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 da. <laughs> so, patrons, let us know how you like this uh, new format. We're being a bit more expansive. We're focusing more on your questions. Let us know in the comments on this episode. Love to hear your thoughts. Speaking of comments and questions from patrons, let's check back in with the live stream, Alabama. What do you got for us? I have a question here from Britt. Recently, I proposed starting an open relationship with my co-parent, but they were not interested. We are not in a relationship as is, but I want to explore other potential possibilities for myself. How can I explain this is non-negotiable for me when I can't completely walk away from them? You can't completely walk away from the person is a story you're telling yourself first off. Now, I understand walking away from this person completely because of the entanglement you have is not realistic. It's not ideal, but also never tell yourself because you can walk away from anything. Ultimately, I mean, what's the, the, um, remember the movie heat when the main character, Robert De Niro says, never bring anything in your life. You can't walk away from in 30 <laughs> seconds flat. And I love that as a spiritual <clears throat> practice <laughs> because it's a practice. I won't cling to anything. Now, of course here, what you're really saying is, Hey, 
I have a kid with this other person, and therefore we will be connected for the next 18 years or whatever it might be. But you get to define what that connection looks like. I think about my wife and her former spouse, and that connection is often mediated through a court because it has to be, right? Now, obviously, you're not there. You're talking about open relationship with this person. And so you obviously have some sort of connection. And if you have a non-negotiable, it's important to get that onto the table. Now, it doesn't have to be during a first date if you're just meeting someone new, but here, it's a non-negotiable. The problem, why we get into discontent in our relationships is when we start to negotiate our non-negotiables. I've got these non-negotiables, but I guess for you, because you're a pretty cool person, you're really attractive, or I really like the way you think, or we want to live in the same neighborhood together, or we'd like the same sports team, I'll negotiate those non-negotiables for you. Okay, good luck being miserable then. Because if you have true non-negotiables, you can bring those to the table. And if that, that if that's a non-negotiable for them as well, it's up to them to tell you. And that's okay. It doesn't mean they're wrong. So how do you approach this? By not judging them, not saying, here's the right way to do it for you, for everyone. Here's the prescription. Here's the should. Hey, here's what I'd like. And it's a non-negotiable for me. And I'm not going to judge you if you want something different. It goes back yeah. to folding to the ace. Like, are you willing to fold your hand to that? I mean, if not, that's okay. And that is going to warrant some more conversation with you and your partner. Um, yeah, I agree with you. The, the story of like, they can't walk away from it. That is a story. They can certainly make, uh, create some distance with their partner. And the, the best way to go about that, if you do decide that you're like, no, I'm not folding this. Like I got a really good hand and I got a really good reason why. That's what I mean by hand. I don't know why I'm still using this poker metaphor, but it really resonates with me. Anyway, so you talk to your partner about like, no, like I'm not willing to negotiate. This is something I really want to do. And that's really the most loving thing you can do for that relationship is bring to them what your non-negotiable is and then talk about what that distance between the two of you looks like. And those are going to be difficult conversations. They're going to get heated probably. Um, that's why I always talk about the um, the book, Nonviolent Communication, because it really like gives you a, a tool, gives you a method to kind of talk to people when it comes to these difficult conversations. But But yeah, I mean, what is your why behind wanting to open up this relationship? If it's something worth exploring and creating some distance with your partner, then you have our permission to do it. But if you're looking at it and you're like, you know what, I can fold this hand. I'd rather like keep what I have. That's okay too. Yeah, it sounds like the the hard question underneath the question is what happens if my non-negotiables are incompatible with his non-negotiables? What happens if through this conversation Mm -hmm. or these series of conversations, he reveals a non-negotiable that doesn't work for me? And at that point, it goes back to what you were saying, Josh, like how the question is not, can I have a relationship with this person? It's what kind of relationship with this person is possible? and adjusting the expectations accordingly. Yeah, Yeah, because you will have some sort of relationship because you share a kid. By the way, even if you don't have any relationship, that's a type of relationship. A former relationship with no contact at all is a type of relationship. It's the relationship has died or gone dormant. That is still a type of relationship. And truth be told, they're still going to be living in your head regardless of whether or not you have these interactions because you share an offspring. And so... The thing that I wouldn't do here is compromise my values. And your values, it sounds like for you, is you want to be in an open relationship. And so compromising that would be 
a beautiful recipe to make yourself miserable on the long run. Now, over time, if that value changes, our values often change over time. Usually not our foundational values, but often our structural values and especially our surface values, they change over time. And so what was non-negotiable last year might be perfectly negotiable in the future. Hmm. But right now, it's a non-negotiable. And I would, I'd stand behind that. Otherwise, you're going to get dragged. Let's, uh, let's check in with the Minimalist Home Tour. We're doing something a little bit different for our 30th Minimalist Home Tour today. 30th. This one... It's for yes. Josh's 30th birthday coming up. Uh, <laughs> in a few years. <laughs> so Krista wrote in, one of our lovely Patreon supporters, and this one is called The Other Side of Spontaneous Combustion. You see this photo here. Now, Ryan, TK, and audience, this is her living room slash dining room. <laughs> Danny, I know. Will you bring that up here? I'm because so old. I can't see him. At first... <laughs> My eyes are going. When you see this, it looks like a rock climbing gym, right? I'm looking at this. I'm like, oh, yeah. This isn't really a living room or a dining room, but it's a functional space. And this is what I love about minimalism. This room for me would feel like clutter because I wouldn't use these things. They would not have mm-hmm. a function in my life. Mm-hmm. However, using your space in an intentional way, a way that is better suited for you, this is what minimalism is ultimately all about. Let's. Mm. I know Krista wrote in a little note with this picture. What did she say, Alabama? She said, three years ago, I had a house fire that gave me the chance to rebuild my life figuratively and literally. What's missing now are conventional items such as a dining room table and chairs and a living room seats for extra guests. In truth, I don't miss them at all. And no guest has ever complained about sitting on the exercise ball, swing, or climbing gym mats. So if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast and not watching the video version here, we sent this photo out to you and also a couple other photos from her living room slash dining room, this beautiful eclectic space. It is essentially an empty room, and it's been turned into an exercise-type room. There's a dog in the photo sitting on the dog bed. There's this little climbing gym and yoga mats and exercise balls. It's a functional space. It's transforming your space from the... This is why I thought this was perfect for this episode, by the way. Because a living room and dining room, when I say those two words, what do you think? You think of a couch and a coffee table and a dining table and a kitchen island and a stove or whatever else is there, right? You have these preconceived notions, just like we do when we talk about relationships. The preconceived notion is what? Monogamy. Here's the Mm -hmm. one way to do it. Just like here's the one way to do the living room. Mm -hmm. My living room looks pretty much like a very simple, traditional living room, as people have seen from past home tours. And so I do things traditionally when it comes to living room decor, right? Krista doesn't. She is uh, non-traditional in her living room. I'll tell you what, that living room looks like there's a lot of living going on in there. Ah, (laughs) yes, indeed. Get it, Krista. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. I love the setup, Krista. And I appreciate you sharing this with us. I I like the functionality of the space. And I love your point, too, about how it's clutter for you. But it's 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 art for her. Yes. And by the way, if you have a couch that you never use, it's probably getting in the way. Yeah. And so 
a regular living room setup can be, even though it looks minimalist, right? it could be clutter if it's not functional for you. And that's the thing, minimalist design, I know that this is how the word gets used in many cases, and that's okay. I'm not in a war against that. But minimalist design is about more than what you will find in a magazine that gets labeled minimalist design. It's sort of like keto-friendly. You got to be careful with those labels, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you just go buy everything that says keto-friendly, you are going to be misled because the labels vary. It can mean a wide spectrum of things. And in a similar way, minimalist design could be something that you see in a magazine where everything is black and white, where everything has a certain sort of sleek, simple design. But it can also simply be this one person creatively setting up their workspace or their living space in a way that optimizes for functionality, even if it doesn't make anybody's magazine. That, too, is minimalist design. It's intentional design. It's what works for me design. Well, hey, it made our video magazine. Bravo, Krista. <laughs> yeah. Really dig that space. Before we close out today, let's read some more about less. Last week, Ryan went over to ChatGPT <laughs> and he said, hey, I need you to write a minimalist children's story. This one is called Minnie the Minimalist Mouse. And here's what artificial intelligence wrote on our behalf. And I just want to point out this is unedited. Yes. Unless you edited it. I did not. Yeah. All right. This is like complete AI. Once upon a time, there was a little mouse named Minnie. Minnie was always surrounded by clutter and mess in her tiny mouse hole. And it made her feel overwhelmed and stressed. One day, Minnie decided she had had enough. She wanted to simplify her life and live with only what she truly needed. So she set out on a journey to become a minimalist mouse. What a smart mouse. <laughs> she started by decluttering her mouse hole. She got rid of all the things she didn't need, like old scraps of paper and broken toys. She kept only the things that brought her joy, like her cozy bed and her favorite book. Next, Minnie started to be mindful of what she brought into her life. She realized that she didn't need to buy every new gadget or toy that she saw. Instead, she carefully considered each purchase and only bought things that she really needed. As Minnie continued on her minimalist journey, she found that she felt lighter and more free. She had more time to spend on the things that she loved, like reading and exploring the world outside her mouse hole. <laughs> <laughs> You are a child. I'm so immature. I can't help it. There's like this, an eight-year-old that lives inside of me. This is definitely a children's book. I've kept book. it in long enough. <laughs> this is definitely a children's book. I have. Because Ryan over I here. I have kept it in long enough. It's that high tea he's got. Chuckling over here. Oh, my God. <laughs> a book that will turn any adult into a child. Oh, my God. Oh my, all right, keep okay. going. Keep going. Keep going. All right, return to text. <laughs> <laughs> Minnie even inspired her mouse friends to try minimalism, too. They saw how happy and peaceful she was and wanted to experience the same. In the end, many realized that minimalism wasn't just about having less stuff. It was about focusing on what was truly important and living a life filled with joy and purpose. And so, Minnie the Minimalist Mouse 
lived happily ever after with a clutter-free home and a heart full of contentment. Dude, I mean, clearly, clearly. Like, and I saw you uh, put on Instagram the other day. I don't know if it was a tweet or maybe it was a picture of your tweet on Instagram. But TK, you were talking about how with AI, like, it's not going to replace that human, emotional, heartfelt um, aspect that creations have. And and I and with this, I feel that it's missing. Well, either someone's if if someone told me that they wrote this themselves, I would just feel, I would feel like they're really just obtuse and unaware of um, a how many times they use mouse hole in that story. <laughs> And also many the minimalist mouse. Like it's clearly like there's a human element missing from that. But here's the argument I want to get for AI. AI, what I like about the idea of it is that it will give you a structure like this mm-hmm. and then you get to add the, hum- the human aspect to it. And that to me is what's really exciting because I, people are, they're so mixed on AI and I think it's everything that everyone thinks it's going to be. But I think there's something that I don't really hear people talking about. I think you're going to actually see art get bumped up to a different level because of AI. Yeah, yeah I agree. I've got no problem with AI. I, um, I for me, I, I, my position on the, on the chat GPT stuff is that the ability to generate pretty or, or poignant sentences in an efficient manner is not a substitute for the internal process of wrestling with ideas and what that can do to the soul. So in an analogous way, I value having machines that can do heavy lifting for me, Mm. right? When we moved from South Carolina to Southern California, I didn't want to carry those boxes by myself. I didn't want to physically run for thousands of miles. I like having machines that can do that for me. But the strength of a machine cannot confer muscular development on me. Right. It doesn't make me strong. It allows me to experience the benefits of having that strength. And so if I want to be strong, if I want to develop muscles, I still have to do something to develop that. And so there's an aspect of writing that's really about personal transformation. That's about the the cultivation of, of critical thinking and creative thinking. And using something like this to create a story can give you output. And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But but it can't give you that process of moving things around inside of your own soul that makes you a certain type of person. And so I think we need both. I think, hey, use that if it helps you. And at the same time, don't stop writing for yourself because that does something to you. It's it's, it's a kind of spiritual practice, if you will. It's like um, when I think when I think of these like, you know, naked and alone TV shows where they're like put out in the wild. I'm like, that's a skill to be able to get dropped down the middle of nowhere and be able to survive. I don't know if I could do it. I have to like find someone wandering in the woods and make friends with them and yeah. they could help me survive. I don't know if I could do it by myself, sure. but it's, it, it's what you're talking about with creativity is kind of, you know, where we've kind of already gotten with living in general. It's like, there yeah. are so many comforts that we have. We don't even think about needing the abilities to like live out in, in nature by ourselves. Some people are really adamant about it and they are doomsdayers. They think the world's going to end. So they have to have those skills. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a, I love that we are on the cusp of this AI thing right now. It is so exciting for me because it's, I don't think we've seen, I don't think we've seen anything yet. Mm, I I bet you by the end of this year, there's already like an album that's produced completely by AI. Like you will have, there will be an album out on iTunes that was completely written by AI. This this already been done, right? Has it been? There was an award. Like, wasn't there a Grammy given to an AI? 
I don't know. That might be, that might be true. My, like an AI DJ? Yeah. So it happened sooner than what I thought. But I mean, it's, it's, I think it's going to be more, it's going to be more common in the way that yeah, we use sure. it is going to be, it's, uh, I think, yeah, we haven't seen anything yet. Well, I can tell you the AI could never produce a song like our added value segment today. This is a little beautiful song about a monogamous relationship. And it's from our friend Canyon City, Paul over there at Canyon City. He wrote this beautiful song. It's his new single. And it is called Blood. We'll leave you with that song today. Patrons, drop in the comments. Let us know what you thought about this episode format, about our guest, Aubrey. Big thanks to Aubrey Marcus for joining us today. You can check him out. We'll put a link to his podcast and his website in the show notes, as well as his new course, From Solo to Sacred Union. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, please, let it be this. Love people, or a person, or multiple people. (laughs) Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. Sometimes it works. Maybe. I don't know. Nope. We don't want to look at the other side of the coin on this. Has he turned into AI? (laughs) Peace, (laughs) y'all. Peace. By the nightlight. Trying to find my way on to this sleepless house Find a mirror, rub it clearer There is still so much I doubt When you wake up, open your eyes And I see Scares me all the hurt I knew. If we shed blood, do you carry the fire in it? Share our troubles, are you buried in mine? Is it too much to give you my heart when to love you is to love me? And I'm sorry. I'm just starting now I'm just starting now By long shot All that I thought Never makes its way through me Leave a closed door Let it transform to a path that leads to peace And if you ever find yourself back There in my shoes will be There together, hand in hand I'll fight any dragon Fighting it, 
share our troubles all you've been reading mine is it too much to give you my heart when the love you is to love me and i'm sorry i'm just learning how i'm just starting Just realizing I could 